All right, folks, welcome back. This is 2022, the end of the year wrap up, and I am presenting a bunch of interviews that I've done on other podcasts, swap casts, and some new episodes like the one you heard yesterday and the one you will hear today, or maybe you already heard it today. Maybe you're listening to this one first and that one next. We're jam-packing the RSS feed between now and 2023, so stay tuned, folks. This episode is featuring yours truly on a fantastic podcast called The Farm Mach 2, hosted by someone who's become a friend of mine. Uh, His name is Recluse. He also goes by Steven Snyder, and he was kind enough to invite me onto his show for an almost three-hour episode that he aired in two parts. The second part is only available on his Patreon. So I'm going to air that here today. Uh, But please return the favor over to Steven and sign up on his Patreon. He's got a bunch of great content. He does monthly Zoom parties and uh, you'll find me there. I go to his monthly Zoom parties when I'm available. Uh, Speaking of which, we're going to be doing monthly Zoom parties in 2023. Uh, Not quite the same as what Steven does, But either way, sign up for Recluse's Patreon. He's got a bunch of great stuff there. And enjoy this interview featuring yours truly on the Farm Mach 2. We talked about uh, basically everything that I've discussed in former interviews you may have heard this week. uh, Skull and Bones topic. And this episode was aired about two months ago. So this one's more up to date than the previous ones you may have heard. So yeah. Let me know what you think of the progress of the information of the research. If you're following along, if you're keeping up with it, maybe you have some information you'd like to add. Uh, Get in touch with me. Instagram is a good way to do that. Telegram is a good way to do that. You can send me a message if you're a supporter on Patreon. Uh, If you're on Rockfin, you can get in touch with me in one of the ways I just mentioned. And I think Substack even has a way that you can comment if you're a subscriber. So there's plenty of ways to get in touch with me, uh, and I hope you do. But as for now, enjoy this conversation with yours truly on The Farm Mach 2.
Hello, folks, and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is your host, Recluse, a.k.a. Stephen Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visit blog and author of a special relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visitview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word, dot blogspot again all one word dot com and procure a copy of that book and my other works at the farm's official store which is the farm podcast all one word dot store and please consider signing up for the farm's patreon you get two additional full-length shows per month on the lowest tier that's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive guests and content and all access patrons get um, the monthly zoom party uh updates on all the ongoing investigations i'm doing and a lot of other goodies so definitely give that a thought as well all right Today's guest is making his maiden appearance on the farm, though I've already appeared on his show. He is the host of My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast and the mastermind behind Alt Media United. Folks, I give you guys the great Mark Palmer. Mark, thank you so much for driving by this afternoon, sir. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here, Stephen. And uh, like you mentioned, you joined me on my show. So thank you for doing that. And uh, thanks for inviting me here. It's a pleasure. Yeah, this is going to be a good one. Uh, for those of you familiar with Mark, you know he hails from New England and is deeply fascinated by the region. So we're going to use that as a launching point. Specifically, we are going to get into his own journey of discovery in New Haven. From there, we're going to consider the strange history of Yale University and the most notorious fraternity of them all from there. And finally, we are going to consider some of the other esoteric orders at play in this strange spot. It's going to be quite a journey, guys. So, let us start the show. All right, so your journey into sacred geometry and mystical topology started with a personal experience, and it involved a burial mound using a modern-day city green, right? Absolutely, yeah. I was was a college student in New Haven at a community college, sort of right on the doorstep of Yale's campus, and uh, I found myself more interested in exploring the city than I did the classes themselves. So in between classes, I would just sort of uh, wander around and look at all the interesting architecture, the graffiti and everything in between. And I started to magnetize to this one particular location in the New Haven Green. And it's a pretty expansive green most town greens are rather small. This one is very large. It's probably the size of two football fields. And on the western half of the park are two churches. And those two churches are very old. Okay, There used to be a third, but there are only two now. And behind those churches used to stand Connecticut's state courthouse when New Haven was considered on par with Hartford because there was a time when New Haven was considered the capital of this state or or like the sister capital to this state. So I, I found a deep little niche there and I sort of wiggled my way in and I would sit down and read books on this little bench and what I mean by that is th- the park was full of homeless people. 
And it really, I mean, it wasn't, at that age, it wasn't really a big deal. I was in, excited at the prospect of <laughs> talking to strange people. You know, I had spent my whole life sort of in the boundaries of modern suburbia, school, sports, you know, that whole thing. I'd never really interacted with people who were on the fringes of society. So I found my little niche there. I, I would go in between classes and just hang out and read the books that I cared about uh, on the green. And it was like a magnetic, it was like a magnetic phenomenon. I don't really understand any other way to explain it because I would sit there and it was like what I was reading about would come to me, right? So I'll give you an example. There are others, but this one's the most prominent. I was reading The Way of the Shaman, um, another book that I was also reading at the time, less impactful was uh, Carlos Castaneda's first book, you know, Teachings of Don Juan. So I'm reading books like that. And coincidentally enough, who walks into my life, but a man from that exact area that Carlos writes about the Southwest United States and someone who is versed in plant medicine and Native American culture. So that's why I say it's kind of like a magnetic spot because you know, here I am reading these books about indigenous culture and shamanism and, you know, what are the odds that a guy all the way from Arizona, you know, walks over to me and I happen to be wearing a shirt that made the conversation uh, easy for him to start. I had a Sitting Bull t-shirt. Sitting Bull was on my shirt. So he was like, oh, you, you know, this kid must know a thing or two about Indians. Let's talk to him. So we talked and smoked a, a joint together and that's when he told me that hey you know you're sitting on a graveyard right now and I'm like what <laughs> he's like yeah this whole park's a graveyard I'm like really he's like yeah you never been inside of those churches I'm like uh well I heard about it so apparently the two churches that are standing there now to this day have um what is it was it's like a not a mausoleum it could be like catacombs or something. Catacomb, yes. Yeah, basically like an indoor cemetery, right? With cement and very creepy stuff. Uh, and it's sort of like a Halloween thing. People get tours on Halloween through that area. You mean it's like kind of underneath the green, like between the two churches is like you're saying kind of like a catacomb or something well, like it's, that. It's like that? the basement of, of one of the churches. So okay. un underneath the, the first church, there's a... Uh, there's sort of like a catacomb basement. So that I had been mildly familiar with, but I thought it was just like, you know, one or two people. I didn't realize it was like, you know, the whole town of New Haven buried their people here for hundreds of years. Uh, and that's the case. So there's this sort of um, graveyard energy there. And uh, yeah, I mean, there's so much more. I don't want to just keep babbling on, but uh, uh, New Haven is the home of America's so first graveyard. So we'll stop there for now. No, that's great. So you basically had a guy from like Arizona, just like kind of randomly show up, smoke a joint with you and uh, explain to you the significance of the graveyard there. <laughs> mm. Well, and, and he didn't just show up. Uh, you know, he, he mentioned that amongst many other things and he still lives in New Haven. He, actually moved from uh, he was like in the process of moving then i tell you yeah he was he was homeless at the time um but yeah he was in the process of moving and he moved for spiritual reasons he found out about 
skull and bones and their practices and he found out that they had desecrated the grave of Geronimo, uh, one of the most well-known Native Americans in American history, someone who historically was never killed in battle. He died in captivity, he, you know, never surrendered until like the ultimate, uh, you know, last, <laughs> the last stand kind of thing. So Geronimo had a badass reputation for being a tough dude. And I think when Amos found out what happened to him posthumously, it really upset him, naturally. Um, so for people who don't know, Prescott Bush, the great grand or the grandfather of George Bush Jr., our most recent Bush president, he went to Fort Sill, Oklahoma in the eighteen hundreds, where Geronimo happened to be buried. And they robbed him and two other people who may or may not have been a part of Skull and Bones, robbed the grave of Geronimo, taking only the skull and femur bones and bringing them back as a trophy to New Haven, Connecticut, uh, you know, desecrating the grave of a very important historical figure, very important American Indian. And Amos was very upset by that. So every day... At noon, he would stand in front of the Skull and Bones headquarters, their little base, and he would scream Geronimo's name like a warrior as loud as he could. It would, it would ring through the campus. You know, th this campus is built with like, you know, uh, <laughs> all these like fancy walls and big towers and stuff. So that his voice really rang. Yeah, as I imagine the acoustics are phenomenal. <laughs> right. So, so that was, that was a powerful experience as a 17 year old man, you know, to become friends with Amos, to learn this story. He even took me to the tomb and, and screamed Geronimo, you know, asked me to scream with him, you know? So, it was very real for me, you know, it was much more than just like, oh, this guy taught me a bunch of things and I believe him, you know, uh, I had no reason to distrust him. And there were, there were a few spiritual instances that confirmed uh, the trust that I had in Amos and the information that he shared with me. Uh, but that was just the tip of the iceberg, you know, like I, I learned about that stuff from Amos and I continued on with my life and I've always been interested in this type of research and the world of supernatural, paranormal, corruption, conspiracy, all of those fields. And I feel like Skull and Bones as a fraternity is interesting because they're sort of a nexus point between the material and the spiritual. They're, they're manipulating more than just politics and economies. They're they're manipulating the geomagnetic energy of the planet, uh, or, or at least of this country. And I hope we can get to some of that today. But yeah, that's where it started with me uh, in an ancient barrier, burial ground, having no idea that that's where it was. Uh, and then, you know, learning so much since. I mean, it's been more than 10 years since I met Amos. Uh, and I actually just saw him a few weeks ago. So I, I've remained friends with him uh, throughout this whole time, and he's taught me many things. But uh, the majority of my research on Skull and Bones has happened in the past few months. Uh, and I have to give a big, big shout out to Chris Milligan at Trine Day for making it even possible. I mean, he published 
Anthony Sutton's work, which sort of was like the little hint that got me interested in this stuff. And then he also published Fleshing Out Skull and Bones, which is a very comprehensive guide to Skull and Bones written by multiple different authors. So I will be citing that as a source if anybody is interested in uh, my bibliography and they want to do their own research. Those two books would be uh, number one on the list. All right. So uh, did your friendship with Amos like I uh, play into what you described to me as your encounter with Geronimo's spirit? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and can you elaborate on that? What do you mean? I don't know, man. It was your. Uh, you said you. Uh, how did you? You uh, said you encountered Geronimo's spirit. Yeah. I mean, maybe I was speaking in a sort of uh, prose there, but yeah. I was like, this is from your notes, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I know. I just the way you phrased that is that I. I believe I'm referring to and. Geez, I could. I hope I'm not forgetting something. No, I'm not forgetting anything. What I'm referring to is is the is not like a paranormal experience or like a ghost sighting or anything like that. What I'm experiencing is the connection, okay, between myself and an ancestor. I'm not an American Indian. I was born, you know, with mutt European genetics. So. On paper, you're going to say, okay, how are you going to connect with Geronimo, right? He's an American Indian, you're not. Um, but love knows no bounds, and I feel a altruistic love for the entire planet. And I think the Native American um, saga, as tragic as it is, needs to be understood by the whole world. Tragically, it is not. It's been manipulated out of our history and censored out of our history. So that's Geronimo's spirit. Geronimo's spirit is the warrior inside of me fighting to get this information to the right people so that we don't have um, more needless suffering, right? I mean, we, we can't erase or correct the pain uh, that's been done, but we can sort of bring the awareness so that we're all in an equal understanding of what really went down. I mean, Columbus and that whole story and the Thanksgiving pilgrimage and all of that, you know, it's, it's full of half truths and truths and deceptive sort of turning people a certain way. Me, I, I've always loved nature I've always loved animals. I've always loved human beings as a part of nature when we're not screwing with nature. Um, so, yeah, that's Geronimo's spirit to me, the, the spirit of, of the American Indian, of the red man, of the person who was completely taken out of their homeland. I mean, here in Connecticut, there were hundreds of different tribes. Most of them are now in the Midwest because they have been uh, pushed out. They got moved out. They got relocated. So that's Geronimo's spirit. I Maybe I phrased it in a, in a way that seemed like I was talking about some kind of like astral out-of-body thing. No, I, no. Um, it's, it's really more of a, it's, it's, it's more of a prayer thing. You know, like Amos taught me the power of prayer and that might sound cliche or corny to someone who didn't grow up in a situation like me, but for people who don't know, I grew up in a situation where 
Catholicism was encouraged, but in a very lazy way. And what that did was it bred, it bred a sort of contempt in me, a contempt for religion and a contempt for ignorance. So I started to become atheistic. I started to think of the world as cold and, and scientific. And that was a deception. That was a manipulation that I wasn't aware of until I met Amos, until I realized what it meant to be a true human being, until I realized what it meant to pray. So, you know, I started off as a young man who didn't believe in God, as a young man who didn't believe in prayer, as a young man who didn't believe in himself. And now I'm a man who knows the truth about God, knows the truth about prayer, and knows myself. So that's the spirit of Geronimo, I guess. <laughs> That's well said, man. Thank you. All right, so uh, let's get into the founding of New Haven. So first off, what is its official origin story? So the official origin is, uh, it's a little little, uh, thick, okay? (laughs) These guys, New Haven, it was the wealthiest colony at the time of its founding, right? So... We have Theophilus Eaton, John Davenport, and John Brockett. These guys are sort of like the the main dudes. John Brockett isn't remembered nearly as much as the other two, uh, but these three men created what is now New Haven. It was a constitutional monarchy uh, founded under a Puritan mindset, a Puritanical religion, uh, and they lasted from 1638 to 1664 in that condition. It was not only the wealthiest colony, but it was probably the least lucky colony. They had the worst luck of all the colonies. Because keep in mind, at that time, starting a colony was like starting a company. You know, you, you either failed and lost your capital, or you succeeded and you have a successful venture. And the New Haven colony failed miserably a couple times. Um, One of the more interesting stories of their failure was, or is remembered as the New Haven ghost ship. They they basically used everything they could muster up from the area that was worth anything and said, okay, we're going to take all these goods and we're going to trade them, you know, in Massachusetts or Virginia, right? And they send this ship off with, I mean, pretty much 80% of what these poor people had in New Haven. They send it off on this ship that never makes it to its destination. Uh, And and, uh, I guess a few days later, people saw a vision of this ship floating in the sky over New Haven. It was a New Haven ghost ship. Most, I think most of the town saw it. You could go into folklore books and find little stories here and there of the phantom ship of New Haven, but... It's sort of a irony, right? They started with all this money and then they just shipped it all away <laughs> on a ghost ship. You still there? Oh, sorry, I was grabbing some coffee. There. That's all right. That's all right. I'll keep going. So. You got just a little pause for 
for, for silence. You could edit that out pretty easily. So, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. so the ghost ship is is a fascinating part of New Haven's history, but it's also, like I said, very ironic. You know, they're this very wealthy colony, and they just shipped off all their wealth for really no gain. You know, obviously they didn't intend on the ship never coming back, uh, but that just shows, you know, their luck, I guess. Now, I should rewind a little bit. The first person to ever technically lay eyes on New England, what is now called New England, was Giovanni Cabot, right? Cabot, John Cabot, this guy. uh, I think they have a cheese company named after him now. The Cabot family became pretty wealthy up in Canada. Um, And he discovered New England on St. John the Baptist Day, which is interesting. Um, Because St. John will come back up in New Haven's history. Um, And then... Dutch ship captain Adrian Block is the first European to set sights on New Haven. And he notes that there are these big red mountain faces on either side of New Haven. So I believe he named it something like Red Rocks, you know. Um, But New Haven was eventually chosen as the name. And... Etymologically, Haven can go back to a couple different places, but, I mean, essentially it means new heaven, right? And this fits into this new Atlantean mindset that a lot of the colonists had, which was like, hey, we're going to a place where, you know, humanity hasn't been, and it's the Garden of Eden, and it's this, you know, holy land that we can now you know, conquer, you know, fresh off of the, the inquisition and the Catholic church versus the Islam and everything that was going on in Europe, you know, Spain, the Dutch, these guys, they just wanted to get their own land and not fight over, you know, the same land anymore. Obviously everybody knows the whole Columbus thing. Oh, I'm going to find the Western route to India. Well, he never found that. (laughs) <laughs> obviously and um and i think that it could be that they never intended on finding india yes they wanted to find an eastern sort of way to attack the muslims right by going through the pacific ocean they could go up the the strait of whatever and attack the muslims from the east that's the concept that we're given oh they're looking for the the trading route, it would be quicker. Well, I think there's a little bit of a conspiracy there that we can sift out. Are you familiar with diffusionism? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So diffusionism is the the theory that, you know, the people living here in North America did not just come over the Bering Strait. There were many, many years or thousands of years of migrations from different parts of the world, whether it was Africa, Northern Europe, or Asia, many different cultures came and colonized and settled here in North and South America way before 1492. Now, the Spanish, right, they hired Columbus to go and find this place. Well, the Spanish had just finished defeating the the barbarians, right, from the Barbary coast of uh, Africa. And you can go and look, you know, now <laughs> the 
those a lot of those places in Africa are deserted to this day. Like they never recovered. The Spanish destroyed their civilizations. Um, but these men were and women were were traders. They were sailors. They sailed the high seas. So my intuition, and I'm sure I'm not the only person who's thought this, is that the Spanish had some information from these people they were just fighting, the barbarians, the Moors, the these traders who you know traveled around the world on ships. I think they had some information about the Caribbean and South America. Obviously Columbus didn't do so well. He got sent back to Spain in irons, but um, the point is is we're given this very fairy tale version of American colonial history. Most people don't even realize that New Haven was its own colony. I mean, you know, we're given this sort of uh, fairy tale version of it that the Plymouth colony and everything going on in Massachusetts is all that mattered. No, not really. I mean, and even that is full of lies. You know, this idea that, oh, um, the Native Americans, we all got along and, you know, everybody broke bread at Thanksgiving and shared their stories. And I mean, that that was partly true for the first winter when the Europeans couldn't survive without the help of the Native Americans. But once the Europeans figured out what they needed to do to survive, they told the natives to F off and, and a lot of times sold them into slavery, right? So you'd have people in Massachusetts enslaving the natives from up there and selling them in Virginia, hence why a lot of the Native Americans today are ha- you know, having a hard time tracing their roots, you know, tracing their ancestry because they've been shipped all over the place. You know, they go from one state to another, to another, to another. And how do you figure out, you know, who your great, great, great grandpa was when you've had that many, you know, tragic turnovers in your life? So I don't want to beat the American Indian drum too much because I'm just a mere white guy, (laughs) just a mutt. But uh, but I I do have an incredible, incredible respect for the Native American Indian, their culture their way of life, their way of thinking. Uh, I understand that there are biases and there are maybe even like things that have been manipulated about their culture. But I think Skull and Bones and groups like Skull and Bones have contributed to that. And I hope we can get to that a little later on in this discussion. But um, but yeah, that's, that's the beginning of New Haven. A very wealthy place. And Yale, to this day is an extremely wealthy university. So although New Haven wasn't as successful as it would have liked to have been as a colony, that ultimately didn't matter. New Haven was absorbed by the Connecticut colony, which was successful. And um, one more thing I should note before we totally leave the subject of the New Haven colony is that the New Haven colony was not limited to the boundaries of what is now considered New Haven. They had territory as far south as Philadelphia. So the New Haven colony was involved in the Philadelphia history, right? This very important, important saga of history, as far as American history goes, is what was going on in Philadelphia. And Philadelphia still to this day is one of the most energetic and symbolic places in this country, 
you know, from the, the center of the city, shaped like a circle, from all the living artwork that's all around it. So when I found out that the, the New Haven colony was connected to Philadelphia, I was like, wow, this is really cool because a lot of the research that inspired me to get into this in the first place was based in Philadelphia. Guys like Michael Wan and Ross Ben who are decoding their own particular areas. That's what got me involved in this. And the same group of Native Americans that lived in Pennsylvania lived in Connecticut and Massachusetts. It was a very mixed bag, you know. There weren't such fixed borders like there are today. Um, they were very able, in a lot of cases, to trade and mingle with each other. Not in all cases. There were feuds, and not all Native Americans got along or even liked each other. They were certainly evil towards one another. You know, I don't want to cast some kind of... Um, some some kind of like rosy-eyed view of this stuff but the Lenape the Lenape people are a very interesting group of Native Americans um, they had an economy that sold wampum and this wampum was found all the way up in Maine all the way down in Florida all the way out to Wisconsin all the way down to Louisiana so that to me suggests that we weren't dealing with, you know, people who fought each other with sticks and, you know, didn't understand the greater world around them. Like these people were trading across the country, across the continent. They knew, you know, they were a lot smarter than we're told. So that's, that's my two cents on Native Americans and American Indians rather, um, I think that the the history has been obfuscated and it's very simple to understand why it's political. It's all political. I mean, they want to maintain control over this uh, property that they've stolen, right? So at first it was, well, the native Indians, they're, they're heathens. They don't believe in God. They don't deserve this godly land. Now it's all, oh, well, they, you know, they, they're drunks and they're not, um, socially mobile they're not uh striving for excellence and they're stuck in these reservations so you know they're just sort of pitied you know which is really the opposite of of what we should be doing we should be uh, trying our best to understand their culture and integrate it in a way that doesn't delude either side uh, but that's humanity you know we we tend to smash each other over the head before we shake each other's hands. Do you uh, want to get into the uh, to New Haven's uh, Magic Nine square grid now? Yeah, so like I said, New Haven was founded as a constitutional monarchy by Puritans. And what's interesting about Puritans are, you know, they seem to be some of the most superstitious people, right? Like they... They were very much against the witches, and but they themselves are practicing magic. You know, superstitious people we tend to think don't practice magic. I would argue that the people who are more superstitious are the people who are more accustomed to <laughs> magic or more familiar. They see it more. They're exposed to it, hence why they're superstitious. Um, and also, there's this sort of underground of Puritan that 
believes in the Christian Kabbalah, or at least some elements of it, right? There's this sort of interplay going on with Puritans, pilgrims, and these groups of religious extremists, right? Because that's what America was. It was just a group group of religious extremists. It's just they weren't all a part of the same group. Right. That was the whole catch. It's like, get out of England. We don't want you here anymore because you're not you don't fall in line. You know, go take your weird beliefs somewhere else. So all these people came and mixed all their weird beliefs together here in in New England and the early Americas. But what we have to understand is those cultures, those European cultures that settled here were pagan in the sense of, you know, worshiping the land and following the old ways. And we can argue, others have, that the Native Americans would have resonated with that. They would have probably had, you know, some similarities there between beliefs, right? Because going with diffusionism, we're told that it's possible that the Native Americans would have been educated by northern Europeans themselves, trading with the Vikings, trading with the Scandinavians. You think it stopped at goods and commerce? No, they traded ideas, they traded rituals, they traded concepts. So I don't think that, you know, the pagan practices of like the Maypole ceremony that um, Thomas Morton put on in Marymount, Massachusetts... I don't think the Native Americans were opposed to it. As a matter of fact, they joined in. That was one of the big turning points in the history of America was the Maypole, Marymount situation. This guy, Thomas Morton, he set up a Maypole. For people who don't know, that happens in May, of course, and it's just like a long stick. You chop all the branches off of a pine tree, and then you put the pine tree up and uh, fix something to the top, and that's the maypole, right? You do sort of dance around it. Everybody goes in a circle around the maypole, and I guess the Native Americans were involved. Thomas Morton invited them to be a part of it, and, you know, they were fornicating and partying and doing all this stuff that the more conservative Englishmen in the colonies probably were very upset about. And then, of course, Thomas Morton believed in the Second Amendment before there was a Second Amendment, and he taught the Native Americans how to shoot guns, and he gave them guns, and probably in exchange to sleep with their women. So, you know, this is a major turning point in the colony's history, because now we have the Native Americans who are no longer uh, subject to, you know, whatever the Europeans' will is, because now they can fight back, right, equally. Um, so that was sort of a long ways away from your question, but I, I promise I'm getting to a point here. My point is that there are very deep pagan roots here in New England, although the people who migrated here, for the most part, were outwardly religious in a monotheistic sense, they had mystical and occult beliefs within that monotheism, whether they were 
aware of it or not, it was just a part of their culture. And one thing that was a very much a part of English culture is the concept of the fairgrounds, right? This sort of monthly or annually, you know, annual meeting place where everybody in town gets together and celebrates whatever the deity of the month is or the deity of the day, you know, whatever particular time of year it is, there's a deity to be celebrating. And these fairgrounds would be set up in nine square grid arrangements, just like the modern city of New Haven is arranged in a nine square grid. And it started off in a much more rudimentary, simple nine square and as urban development evolved in New Haven, the nine square became sort of like a bisected nine square where each individual square has a line through it, right? A street, um, except for one. And that is the center. That's the green. There's a road that goes down the middle, but that is like the kind of the axis of the entire um, square it's not just bisecting the one square like in all the other squares so we have this center green all the people are buried there oh I didn't even tell you how many 600,000 people are said to be or I'm sorry there I go with the autistic numbers 6,000 6,000 much less than 600,000 6,000 people is still a pretty good amount I mean I imagine yeah. this isn't, I mean especially the large area you're talking about it's it's not a particularly large area for 6,000 people yeah I mean it is they're packed in there pretty deeply and um and it's actually funny I remember where the hundred thousand thing comes from so New Haven was built the, like I said, in that nine square arrangement, but the center square was built so that exactly 144,000 people could fit standing shoulder to shoulder in the green. Why is that? Well, in the Bible, book of Revelations, it talks about 144,000 souls being saved by God on the final day of judgment. So this was, you know, the, the millinery religion, was ingrained in the psyche of the early American. They were all, you know, waiting for the apocalypse. I mean, I don't think there's ever been a time in American history where a group of people didn't think the apocalypse was imminent. It seems like it's a part of the fabric of our American psyche, this idea that, you know, the apocalypse is coming, God's judgment and I mean, right down to the, the finding and the founding of this land, it sort of fits into certain prophecies as well. So I think they they built the city in a nine-square grid for many different reasons. Tradition, of course, ease of function, of course, but also as a way to spiral down and anchor the energy that they were hoping to utilize to make their colony more successful. And that is the energy of Saturn. Why is that? Well, I've done a little bit of math. I've looked at the map. I've looked at the old maps. I've looked at some new maps. I've looked at the city itself from the ground. And I always wondered why 
the ninth square was not in a numerical position. So what do I mean by that? So if you were to number the squares in a nine square grid, you would get one in the top left box and you would get nine in the bottom right hand corner box, right? That would just be numerical order. Well, when we look at New Haven, we see that the ninth square is not in that position numerically. It's not reversed. It's not, you know, in any order. It's actually in the bottom center square of the ninth square. Now, at first, I thought this was a mistake. I thought maybe it was something to do with the fact that in the 1600s, magnetic north was in a different position. So they would show it in a different position on the map where it would be on the western side of the map rather than the northern side of the map. Right, we, we see the north as the top of the map nowadays, but back then the map would have been oriented to the left half of the page as the, the northern half of the page. So I started to wonder, like, why would they put the ninth square there? Is this a mistake? Does this have to do with, like, some kind of city zoning thing where it used to be the eighth square and then they named it the ninth square? Well... I then found this thing about magic squares. And when you put numbers one through nine in a nine by nine, or I'm sorry, three by three square box, you get only one sequence that equals a sort of, oh, I forget the right term for it, but you get the same sum no matter which, numbers you add up, right? So you have all your numbers in your three by three box and, you know, one line equals nine, another line equals nine. You're just doing addition, right? You're taking the top three squares and you're saying, okay, this number plus this number plus this number equals nine. And no matter which numbers you pick in whichever order, they're all going to equal the same number. So when you put one through nine in the three by three box, you get the new the sum of 15 no matter which way you put it it's 15 and uh, this is probably sounds like alphabet soup right now or number soup i apologize i don't have a like a some a visual to show you right now uh for this audio episode but when you arrange the numbers of the magic square over the New Haven city plan, you get exactly what I'm describing, this magic square arrangement where it starts with a four, then a nine, then a two, then a three, five, seven, eight, one, six. This would be the order that you would get to add up to all 15, no matter what angle you approached the square. And one plus five equals six. Six is Saturn. Saturn is the sixth planet from the sun. That's kind of what I was getting at earlier with this sort of anchoring energy down into the grid. You know, it seems like they're trying to call in that Saturnian energy, not to mention, you know, your dead bodies underneath the green and skeletons and whatnot. 
No, this is fascinating, man. Um, is there any other Saturnine symbolism you uh, discerned in New Haven? And uh, also, I know you had mentioned Satan, Satan's axis as well. Yeah, so what's interesting about, and there is more Saturn, Saturnian energy in New Haven we can examine, uh, but I do want to bring up Satan's axes because Yale is one of nine Ivy League schools. I believe there's nine in total. There might be a few more. But the majority of these Ivy League schools are all along the Satan's axes. Now you're saying, well, okay, that's probably coincidentals. For people who don't know what Satan's axes is, it's a, a term that was used in the colonial days to describe everything west of what had been settled. So there was a line from New Orleans to Boston, right? That, that would be the extreme of the line. Boston would be the farthest north in the U.S., and then New Orleans would be the furthest south. But in between, if you drew a straight line in between New Orleans and Boston, <laughs> call it a coincidence, but you're going to run that line through Providence, Rhode Island, New Haven, Connecticut, New York City, Trenton, New Jersey, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Washington, D.C., Atlanta, Georgia, and then, of course, uh, New Orleans, and maybe even Mobile, Alabama. I'm not sure uh, as well about my southern geography. But that in itself to me is not a coincidence. You might argue that, well, okay, that's just how history worked. They were building from the coast westward. So naturally there was sort of a line that formed. Well, yeah, but here's the other thing. In Mexico, we have a pyramid called Teotihuacan and if you drew a straight line between Teotihuacan and Boston New Orleans would still be on that line and so would every other college on the line so it doesn't uh, change the position of the line really what I'm saying is that if we extend that Satan's axis line past New Orleans and past Boston it connects to even more interesting locations around the world. The Teotihuacan Pyramid, Stonehenge in uh, the UK. So I don't think it's a coincidence. I think it's a planned geomantic spell because human beings live on the coast. The coast is the most important political territory that a country can have. You know, a landlocked country is nowhere near as powerful as a country with a coast, let alone two coasts or, you know, you know, uh, all coasts that would probably make them an island, which is not as powerful. But either way, uh, this is, you know, we're talking about empire building. We're talking about nation building. We're talking about very smart men who wanted to create an empire. And I don't think it was an accident that they chose to build the majority of the East Coast cities along this ley line. Now, why is it a ley line? I'm not an expert on ley lines as far as determining whether they're there or not. I defer to Peter Shampoo. He's the expert that I learned about this from. So if anybody's interested in learning more about this, uh, he calls it the Akkadian ley line because it also connects to some 
major Acadian um, cultural centers in the world and the Acadian culture, which is a very ancient culture. Um, so yeah, it's, it's an interesting arrangement. You know, anybody can go and just do a Google search and search up the Ivy league schools and you'll find a map and you'll see Penn state, Princeton, Columbia, Yale, Brown, Harvard. They're all in this straight line. It's like, whoa. it just, it's kind of baffling when you look at it, you know, it's like, and then you also have the concept of the Ivy, right? What is Ivy? Ivy is this long, you know, vine that just keeps on climbing and climbing and climbing. What, what is this group of people doing? They're climbing like a vine to the top uh, and squeezing the reins of power, you know, the same way a vine climbs to the top of a tree and then takes it over. You know, if a vine is successful, the tree will not be, right? So that's kind of... What I think of this is like human beings, we're the tree of life and we've let this vine of evil sort of slide up our trunk and it's making its way for the top and we got to sort of do what we can uh, before it's too late. But he asked me about Saturnian energy in New Haven and I mentioned earlier that New Haven has the first cemetery in the United States. Now, people in Virginia or... Uh, older colonies are going to get mad and say, no, that's not true. Well, technically, this is the first cemetery of its kind. Now, let me explain. This Grove Street Cemetery is the first Garden of the Dead. <laughs> that's, that's what they called it when it was built, the Garden of the Dead. And the reason why they called it the Garden of the Dead was because it was the first uh cemetery that wasn't totally just like bodies buried in a pile you know each person had their own plot it was sort of like a royalty thing like i'm sure royalty had their own separate burial plots so it's sort of like we see the this aristocrat class sort of rising and, and instead of having just like one royal palace with one royal burying ground well if you have an aristocrat class you need the aristocrat cemetery so that's what we have here we have this sort of cemetery where everybody gets their own plot there's a sidewalk in between each plot each headstone is an ornate you know piece of art and obelisks and tombs and really interesting interesting artwork the um the architect who built the Archway also has some strange connections um, around the world. He's actually the, the main architect behind several different buildings, the U.S. Federal Building in New York City, uh, and he also built the Skull and Bones Tomb, right? So there's this sort of uh, group of architects who are involved in these projects, uh, whether it's building the Skull and Bones Tomb, the cemetery, um, government buildings, even the Wadsworth Athenium Museum, where thousands of different artifacts from all over the world are kept. Um, you know, this is... This cemetery is It's interesting, you know. It's been called like a city of the dead, right? And not just because of the sidewalks that individuate the plots, but because... There are trees and 
it's meant to feel like you're in a very peaceful, very calm city, almost. <laughs> All right, I got a couple of like interesting things here to add from my own research. Um, <clears throat> in terms of the location of New Haven, it's uh, fairly close to the 42nd uh, parallel, which in some accounts is held to be um, the so-called uh, psychic highway. And that's due to sort of the uh, migration in the United States and how it was um, you know, kind of uh, followed by a lot of, uh, you know, at the time, fringe religious movements. I mean, many of them sort of remained fringe religious movements. But there's a lot of um, interesting cities along the 42nd. Boston, of course, was like the first major one founded. There's also Buffalo. A good chunk of the um, 42nd cuts through upstate New York, which was uh, a big part of the burned over district during the Second Great Awakening. Um, you know, this is kind of the whole region where spiritualism and Mormonism and um, the Shakers and a lot of uh, these other kind of traditions caught on. Um, and then kind of going further um, westward, it goes right through sort of the area with the Erie Canal and um, and through like Detroit, Chicago, good chunk of southern Wisconsin, like around Milwaukee and so forth. So it's, you know, really fascinating. I mean, um, uh, New York was like probably again, um, you know, upstate New York was sort of like the first uh proto i guess you could say kind of new age mecca i mean i suppose you could go back even further and say boston was sort of the og one in that sort of broader region mm. in new england but um then sort of from there i mean chicago became like a, a really big spot too towards the late 19th early 20th century also sort of around the detroit region um you know it didn't really kind of depart from the 42nd until later on when you see a lot of the stuff kind of taking root in san francisco um but yeah it's just really really fascinating and i mean even you know when you see things like uh you know in the case of southern wisconsin there was actually i think to this day still there was a pretty vibrant uh spiritualist movement that uh, came from a lot of the migrants uh from upstate new york i mean they had the only oh, yeah. spiritualist college uh in the entire country uh there was several well, and, and and before that it was the transcendentalist movement too i believe yeah, yeah well the transcendentalist movement yeah kind of sprung up around this like whole area too but see okay here's like another thing though that's really interesting about this okay so the 42nd um, when you go back towards Europe, it cuts right through um, the Pyrenees uh, mountain range. And this is a really interesting area. The Pyrenees mountain range was the historic border um, between France and Spain. I mean, mm. it pretty much still is essentially to this day. And so on you know, the French side of the country, I mean, you have like uh, pretty much like the whole kind of Cathar like region, you know, Rene's Le Chateau and what have you is like kind of in this whole sort of region and what have you. And then um, the Southern side of the Pyrenees is uh, Basque country, Catalinian, you know, kind of area. Uh, was it uh, Girona? I think G I R O N A. 
um, is right there. It was a, a major city for a lot of the Spanish Jews uh, for many years, and it played a significant role in the development of the Zohar and a lot of the other uh, major strands of the Kabbalah. It was really more or less like the uh, Kabbalah capital of uh, Europe for um, at least, I mean, probably 200 years or so. Um there's also the Galicia region uh, on the Spanish side, which is really interesting. That was allegedly um, the uh, area that the uh, Celts originated from before they migrated over <clears throat> into, um, you know, the uh, British Isles. Uh, it's also supposedly where the grimoire, the book of... Um, St. Cyrian, that's how it's pronounced, I came from, which became eventually a really um, popular grimoire in South America, Mexico, Central America, places like that. Um, but it's, interesting, it's, it's interesting you, you bring up grimoire because when you started talking about France and the Pyrenees, it reminded me of, so I recently, and this connects to, to New England. I recently was in Pennsylvania down in uh, Lancaster County where they have a, a lot of Amish, right? And what fascinates me the most about the Amish is their folk magic. And a lot of that stems from exactly where you're describing along this 42nd parallel uh, on the border between France and Spain and the border between France and Switzerland, which I don't know if that's also on the 42nd, but... Uh, these two areas were sort of like melting pots in Europe where Puritans and uh, Jews and Muslims and Christians of all different denominations were sort of blending their mystical ideas with one another and then um, emigrating out to the U.S. where, yes, they sort of spread. But it's interesting you bring up New Haven in conjunction with the 42nd Parallel my my instincts would not have brought that because I've always looked at the 41st parallel as like closer and more interesting to New Haven's story. But you are right in a way because Hartford is on the 42nd or close enough. And Hartford has been sort of like the big brother to New Haven throughout history. And also uh, the more influential of the two, uh, Hartford is known as like the insurance capital of the east coast and that's mostly because a lot of the piracy and privateering and the shipping of goods and whaling was centered out of hartford and new haven uh, a lot of the privateers that were going out to the indies and you know causing trouble and fighting the spanish and all this stuff they were new englanders they were people who immigrated from Europe with all these funky ideas and then <laughs> started wailing. But yeah, it is, you know, there's so many connections. I think some people probably think like, what, is, what do ley lines have to do with anything? Well, what what's really become fascinating for me about ley lines is their ability to function as sort of like rivers of thought, rivers of human energy. Because it's human energy that's being, tra uh, that's traveling along these ley lines over and over and over and over, making this lasting impression that affects generations uh, in the future. Well, I mean, another thing, too, that's sort of interesting about, like, the region around the Pyrenees, I mean, some of the um, theories that have been put forward about, like, uh, you know, a few of the regions there that have generated a lot of speculation, like Bernays, the Chateau, and um, 
uh, all the renovations Santier did there and what have you to the church and so forth. Now, uh, this author, Patrice Chaplin, um, has written a couple of like really interesting books. Uh, she spent quite a bit of time in the region researching this and had worked with several of the other researchers uh, who had subsequently got a lot more uh, credit than she has, though she probably uh, deserved it more for some of uh, her uh, footwork that she had done earlier on the whole region. But anyway, to make a long story short, uh, in her premise, part of the renovations done at Renée's Le Chateau and um, you know, several of the other regions uh, have been done essentially to build uh, these towers, um, you know, because that was really the significant thing that uh, Satyar had set up in that area was the tower, not so much what the things that he had done to the church, but the, uh, you know, and there had already been some of these structures put up like in Girona and some of the other areas around the Pyrenees. And it was essentially, again, you know, what you're saying to kind of harness some of this energy off of like the ley lines and so forth. So, I mean, I find it, like, fascinating that um, it seems like especially there was a lot of effort put forward to try and, um, uh, you know, take advantage of the energy from that specific region. Um, and one other thing, too, I wanted to mention, too, there was the old saying, what is it, and Arcadia Ego, um, and in Arcadia I Am, supposedly that actually also originated from the Pyrenees region, uh, because it was kind of seen as uh, one of the, like, modern manifestations of Arcadia, but... Um, yeah, I'd yeah, be interested to, to trace that Arcadian ley line and see if it curves towards the Pyrenees. I mean, it, it curves into the Stonehenge area, so an Avebury, so it's not entirely... Yeah, yeah, it would be fascinating, but I mean, yeah, certainly, I mean, whenever you see the Arcadia reference, I mean, that's usually a sign, you know, that it was, uh, it was a significant spot. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, Newport Tower comes to mind in this area is, you know, possibly um, built in that same style or with that same intention of tapping into the ley lines but it's interesting to note you know the most prominent schools of the you know east coast establishment they're centered along this energy line and uh you know a lot of the schools across the united states were founded in some way by one of these primary ivy league schools you know uh many of the the first presidents and uh, founders of, you know, co colleges like the University of California or Stanford or, you know, places that are now maybe pushing the envelope further than MIT or Yale, you know, they've, they were the, the predecessors of that. So I, I don't, I don't mean to, to generalize too, too much, but we can find a connection, you know, in Skull and Bones to John Hopkins University, Carnegie, Cornell, the University of California. I mean, just those alone <laughs> from one guy, Timothy Dwight, right? Timothy Dwight was, uh, or I'm sorry, Daniel Gilman. Timothy Dwight was uh, influential in, in the American Psychological Association, but Daniel Gilman he left Skull and Bones and went and founded all these other colleges. And it seems to me like there's a focus on anthropology. There's a focus on gathering all of these relics from pre-Columbian, whatever, from pre-colonial times. 
and hiding it. You know, there's this stuff about the giants, and I know you were just exploring the Hopewell Adena Mound area uh, in Ohio, and you also went to Wisconsin, I think, recently, Stephen. So, you know, there are, there are all these mounds that I've been learning about that were destroyed. Uh, you have the whole Michigan relics, and even the University of Michigan is very interesting. I mean, they're one of the older universities in the country. And, uh, and yeah, it, just, it seems to me like whether it was political, whether it was religious— whether it was through a secret society or through a boys club of any kind, there was a concerted effort to take the actual history of the American Indian and hide it from people so that they could establish those land claims, you know, without any uh, maybe reasons to, to think twice. All right, man. So uh, let's see here. Okay. So uh, getting into Yale more proper. Um, let's see. So do you want to get into uh, the Yale, this Yale character himself, uh, the guy that the university is named after? Uh, you never really hear much about him. I heard he yeah, came from a deeply Welsh background. Yeah. And it's interesting timing to bring him up, you know, considering we have the uh, Welsh King Charles now in uh, the throne, right? So, yeah, he's, he's an interesting guy. So, Elahu Yale is his name. And I should say that Yale didn't start in New Haven. It started in Old Saybrook, which, again, um, Old Saybrook is interesting, connects to Hartford. Hartford was founded by uh, a group of people, but one of the more interesting people that lived in was in charge of Hartford for some time was a man named John Winthrop the Younger. And John Winthrop the Younger uh, was a practicing alchemist. Okay. He was very influential in the early history of Connecticut. And many of the businessmen, clergymen, just normal people in Connecticut, Massachusetts, and Rhode Island at this time were interested in the occult and alchemy. Uh, it was very commonplace. It was very much commonplace. And this is where this whole, you know, witch trial scene is set because, you know, everybody is trying to get ahead and magic seems to be uh, the best way to do so. So people are practicing magic on their neighbors and you have this mystical group of clergymen who put together something called, called the 40 folios, Okay. So they put together the 40 folios, and this is designed to be, you know, the basis of a new school. Uh, the likes of Oxford, the likes of Cambridge, right? Because Yale and Harvard are just, you know, the U.S. versions of Oxford and Cambridge, really. So um, we have Yale founded in this mysterious way by these mysterious clergymen with these 40 folios that uh, I think some of them were lost to time. Um, and they start a school, one floor schoolhouse in Old Saybrook, and they raise enough money to eventually start a school in New Haven. And they 
are able to do that thanks to a very wealthy man named Elahu Yale, who basically gives him a bunch of money uh, to start this college. And where does all his money come from? (laughs) Well, it comes from the drug trade. It comes from human trafficking. It comes from just, you know, all the lovely things that we remember from the uh, age of discovery as it's, politely remembered uh, the age of discovery, right? But Eli Yale, he's got some interesting ancestry himself. So, um, like I said, British East India Company, um, he lived in Fort St. George in Madras, India, right? So he didn't even really ever, I don't think he ever even stepped foot in Connecticut. He just sent the check. Um, But he was a descendant of, of course, someone who had, gone to school in England, a very uh, prominent doctor, David Yale, uh, who I think he graduated from Oxford, and they are descended through a long line of uh, Welsh people uh, going back to, through John Fitzgerald, uh, one of the first barons of Desmond, and then you can trace it even further, and we're going down... um, Elihu Yale's paternal genealogical line right now. I'm just tracing the father of the father of the father. And it goes, like I said, back to uh, the first baron of Desmond. Uh, But he's also related to an interesting guy named Maurice Fitzgerald, the invader. Okay. Uh, These are the Normandy guys who, who invaded the British Isles, part of the you know, killing all the Druids and the pagans and pushing them all up into Ireland. And uh, so it's sort of, you know, kind of interesting that he's connected to that. Uh, And then he's also connected to a man named Otho Gherdini. And the Gherdini family is a very interesting Italian noble family. Um, So, yeah, he's got... He's got deep roots. I would say this guy connects to, you know, the black nobility. Black meaning hidden, black meaning black magic occult. Um, so, yeah, we, we can trace the Yale's history back, like I said, through Thomas Yale. Uh, then in the noble houses of Wales, uh, <laughs> they're connected to the royal house of Mathrafal, the royal house of Aberfra, the princely house of Powys Fadog. I know I'm pronouncing these wrong. Uh, the Tudors of Pennymead uh, and the house of Fitzgerald, which for people who uh, know U.S. history well, uh, maybe John Fitzgerald Kennedy, a.k.a. JFK, uh, is ringing a bell, and rightly so because JFK is connected to the same family that Elahu Yale was connected to. So a little bit of genealogical work there. Um, But yeah, it's interesting to note, you know, because the Welsh marches are steeped in occultism, steeped in occultism. We're talking druids, witches, we're talking dragons, we're talking, you know, Merlin, cauldrons, you know, everything that we remember from the times of uh, of King Arthur and all that, I mean, that's Welsh culture, right? They're, they're steeped in it. Uh, and 
I don't think it's a coincidence that Skull and Bones would find a home in a place established by such a family, right? Because this is bread and but this is their bread and butter. This is why they want the secrecy. This is why they want the exclusivity so they can continue the mystery schools, right? Um, the priestly class became the nobles who became the establishment who became the aristocrats and so on and so forth. So, um, I don't know if I'm jumping the buck here, but do you want to get to the part about the Mona Lisa and how that connects to JFK and Yale? Yeah, go for it, man. So, like I said, the Gerhardini family connected to Yale through blood but also connected to, you know, Italy in a big, big way. They're big players in uh, Italian nobility. So we can look at this sort of point in history with JFK as an example of this sort of connection to royalty because JFK's wife, Jackie Kennedy, was the first American to be able to take the Mona Lisa out of its, you know, resting place and over to America, which is a huge, huge thing. You know, this is an incredible priceless piece of art. It's basically worshipped. So to move it and bring it to the United States was a big deal. And they would not have done that for anyone other than their own, uh, which was the Kennedys. And yeah, it's interesting because the Mona Lisa is actually a depiction of one of the Gardini family. So what we're talking about here is JFK is a distant ancestor of the woman portrayed as the Mona Lisa. So, you know, what are the odds that the first president to be able to partake in this sort of international uh, art sort of uh, diplomacy, none other than JFK. I mean, he's related to freaking Mona Lisa. So, yeah, it, that I think it's it's interesting. And even the, the Fitzgerald family and the Kennedy family, they, they've maintained friendships with these Italian nobles uh, for centuries, right? This is how they roll. So um, there are some more details there uh, with the whole... Mona Lisa thing. Um, but yeah, what people should know is the the Marquis and the Counts of the Gardinis are are very powerful even still to this day in Rome, Venice, and Florence. And uh and yeah, you know, uh, probably through Yale. I mean, I like I said, I I don't know if I mentioned how close I lived to Yale, but I live within like twenty minute drive and uh I've spent my whole life in this area. And there is a strong Italian presence in New Haven. We have like a little Italy section. Uh, Worcester Street is famous for the best pizza in the whole world. You know, people with their their egos about pizza. Uh, but yeah, it's it's not. You know, it doesn't fall far from the truth when you actually take a walk around and look and see. Like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, the tallest one of the tallest buildings in new haven is the knights of columbus building which you know it's very italian and catholic um but yeah that's that's the gist of the the mona lisa
All right, so let's see here. Uh, okay, let's talk some skull and bones. So first off, do you buy uh, how how what's up with the eighteen thirty two founding date, and why is eighteen why eighteen thirty two in the first place? Well, there's a lot of speculation. There's a bunch of different hypotheses about this. Anthony Sutton writes that they are the second chapter of a group founded in 1832, right? So their chapter was founded in 1832, hence the 322 significance with that whole number. Um, But I, I, I... as far as I know, it's pretty. There's really no debate about when Skull and Bones was started. William H. Russell and Alfonso Taff started Skull and Bones in 1832 um, after they had traveled to Germany for their junior summer. They came back to Yale for their senior year and they basically started a chapter of what they had allegedly become a part of in Germany. Now, in Germany at that time, uh, you know, you have the Wilhelm Wundts, you have the, uh, you know, Hegelian, the George Hegels of the world, sort of putting their hyper-materialism philosophy into practice. They're telling people that the, the natural world is a dead husk, It's just a shell and Darwinian psychology of we have to, you know, compete and be the best. And, you know, the state knows what's best for people and we should really just be subservient to the state. And these are these aren't, you know, concurrent. I'm sort of just giving you like talking points. Boom, boom, boom. But these are the ideas that were at play in Germany at that time when William Russell and Alfonso Taft, who's related to President Taft, of course, uh, came back to New Haven and started Skull and Bones. Now, prior to 1832, the whole country, I'm sure you know, was shooken up with the anti-Mason event, right? We have the first uh, nonpartisan party, America's first third party political group, which was the anti-Masonic party established around that time. And that caused many of the fraternal organizations to make a decision. They could either go underground and continue their exclusive ways in secrecy, or they could publicize themselves and be, you know, upstanding outward facing members of society. So that's when you have groups like what we now think of as like the Greek letter organizations start to pop up throughout the college system in the United States. Because prior to this, it was very occult. It was very Freemasonic. You would have groups like the Wolf's Head Lodge in Yale or Skull and Bones. But then there was others, you know, Skull and Bones is actually, you know, uh, sort of late to the game as far as secret societies within colleges go. Uh, The first secret society within a college was at the College of William and Mary. Uh, It was the Phi Beta Kappa uh, Society. But they they have another name. forget off the top of my head. I think it's something to do with hats, the old hat society, something like that. I apologize. So 
Skull and Bones. They have a, a brother organization called Book and Snake. They have, uh, like I said, Wolf's Head Lodge, which is also slightly associated with them. Uh, Wolf's Head is a symbol for uh, Freemason, right? The son of a Mason is considered like a Wolf's Head. Uh, and then the <laughs> emblem that Wolf's Head Lodge uses is a Wolf's Head on top of an upside-down Ankh, right? The Egyptian Ankh, upside-down. So, you know, clearly very occult themes going on in the 1800s with these groups. You know, only less than 100 years after the revolution, too. You know, America's still super young as a country. Uh, Prior to the Civil War, uh, I don't think that's a coincidence either, Uh, Skull and Bones makes its way into the American education system, and shortly after, all of Americans, America's colleges have analogous groups. Whether associated with Skull and Bones directly or not, that's very hard to track down. But what we can safely say is that after this point in time, 1832, you started to see more and more secret groups like Skull and Bones start to appear. Um, Harvard has the Porcelain Club. Uh, Bohemian Grove, of course, is not associated with any college, but um, sort of has a similar reputation, uh, although pulling from a different group of people. Um, and yeah, of course, the idea is, is about exclusivity, but there's also a strong nationalistic sense that was being pushed into the country at that time. Um, The founder or one of the co-founders of Skull and Bones, William H. Russell, he actually founded uh, Connecticut's first National Guard, which I don't know that many states had National Guards at that time. Um, And then we could get into the the drug side of it. I mean, Taft is, a lot of people point to his connections there, but, you know, Connecticut in general, we made the fastest boats, right? So the Yankee Clipper at that time in the eight, early 1800s, that was one of the faster boats around. Uh, so th- these guys were sort of primed to be um, the criminally motivated, upwardly mobile members of society. I mean, that's really what it is. It's, it's people who are above the, the class system to the point where they're no longer being victimized by it, so they're able to victimize people uh, by selling drugs, by enslaving, selling human beings. I mean, these are all commonplace uh, before the Civil War, right? I mean... The Civil War, we're told, ended that, so to speak. Uh, I would argue that we've all just been enshackled with invisible chains rather than uh, set free, but I don't know. Maybe I'm being a little pessimistic there. Uh, But I think, you know, you've had an excellent conversation with John Klysek, who talks all about how they've dumbed down the the majority of students in our American schools. And I think Skull and Bones is a part of that. Actually, in America's Secret Establishment, an introduction to the Order of Skull and Bones, Anthony C. Sutton spends about two or three chapters showing how the Skull and Bones Order went and controlled the education system. I think John even talks about that. So it's, uh, 
it's sort of a, a multifaceted plan that's hatched on the nation. And it's hard to just say it's all skull and bones. I don't know if it's all skull and bones. I think it's it's a Masonic type of thing. It's it's whatever it's whatever suits the parasite, right? I mean, it's a parasitic entity that wants to control human beings through society. And when the Masonic anti-Masonic movement happened and William Morgan was thrown off Niagara Falls and the whole nation got upset about it, uh, rightly so, <laughs> the the Masons just changed their name, changed their modus operandi, and did the same thing they were doing previously. And, and that's not to say Masons are even, you know, a part of it. I, like I said, it's just, it's a, it's a costume that this parasite wears. If it suits the parasite to become a Mason, then they'll become a Mason. If it suits the parasite to become a college uh, initiate in a secret order, then that's what they'll do. It's all, it's about the agenda, you know, and, and as I've highlighted, you know, we have royalty backing up these organizations. We have big, big money, big interest backing up these organizations from the beginning. So to me, it's just the same, it's the same uh, force, just a different mechanism. You know, it's the same mechanism, just a different, you know, time frame. Yeah, well put, Mark. And um, one thing I will point out about Bohemian Grove, even though they never had a um, specific connection to uh, a university per se, both um, Stanford and Berkeley staff members usually, I, in fact, I think they had their own, um, you know, campgrounds at that, like, um, the resort, you know, whatever the Bohemian Grove thing that they have, where you know they go to do the ritual. Um, yeah, on the Russian River down there, uh, yeah, near San yeah, Francisco. Yeah. So, I mean, there was a historic connection uh, with Stanford and uh, UC Berkeley. I don't know if it's strong as it used to be, but I know that it went back really from like very early days. I think Hoover, Herbert Hoover, was the one who had really kind of uh, started to establish, like I said, links between the uh, faculty at Stanford and then later UC Berkeley with um, the Bohemian Society. So, yeah, it is sort of interesting when you kind of look at some of these regions, how there is, are these kind of exclusive groups like that that are behind some of these, um, you know, really hoity-toity universities and so forth. <clears throat> but, um, uh, yeah, you know, it's another interesting thing, too. There's the famous um, painting um, that's also named Eto in Arcadia Ego, uh, with the two shepherds in it, and they're contemplating the skull. I always have found like sort of the symbolism related with the skull in Arcadia to be really interesting in a lot of this as well. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, there's kind of like that other component uh, in the reoccurring uh, thread of that. Uh, so much of this um, kind of twilight language, if you will. Well, and it's interesting to bring up art because you know Skull and Bones have used art uh, to their advantage. Obviously, we. We all suspect there's money laundering at play in art, but uh, the art world is enmeshed within New England society, uh, and the tomb, Skull and Bones' tomb, is surrounded uh, on three sides by art galleries, right? So uh, I think that they've done this purposefully to sort of obstruct the average person from seeing their little headquarters, 
Uh, they actually were broken into in the late 1800s by a group of people called the Order of the File and Claw, uh, a group of disgruntled Yale students who did not like how Skull and Bones had politically taken over Yale University using the Sheffield Science School and the money you know that they well wielded through their their influence with the Sheffield Science School eventually uh, totally you know buying the the Sheffield Science School and bringing it into Yale or maybe the other <laughs> side of it where the you know Sheffield Science School bought Yale right um, but either way this science school made all its money with the Rockefellers and the oil business skull and bones and um, they, they had just really gotten a bad reputation from the rest of the town, from, from the, from the fellow student body. I mean, there were rumors that they were communists and this was way before McCarthyism, right? Uh, you'd have these like pamphlets being spread around New Haven that say, watch out for the communists in their, in their hats and sashes, right? Cause they would wear these sort of like sashes to show, uh, allegiance to whichever group they're a part of, uh, certain special days. Uh, but either way, uh, they built these art museums in a certain way so that, um, when you're driving down one of the main roads in New Haven that normally you would have been able to see the tomb from now, instead you have this big, big, expansive art museum, and it connects with this bridge over the street that Yale's Skull and Bones tomb is on, right? Imagine you're sitting at the Starbucks across the street, and you can't see the tomb because the art museum is stretching across the street and connecting with the other art museum, the older art museum. So they literally built a new art museum and connected it to the old art museum in a way that obstructs its view from the city. Now, High Street is the name of this uh, street that the tomb is on. And the tomb is very interesting. It's the most famous of the strange buildings in New Haven, but it's not alone. There are, I think, five or six mausoleums is the proper term. And they call them this because there's no light that goes into these buildings. Uh, there's very few windows, so they're very dark tombs. Um, but yeah, it's, to me, not an accident, again, that High Street is a one-way street, meaning only, you know, one lane of traffic, and it doesn't go anywhere. It just goes you know, a few blocks and then you're meant to kind of turn left or turn right on to one of these one-way streets, but it's not like a heavily commuted road. Um, but if you look at it on the map, you see that it goes from the south of New Haven, where the water is, Long Island Sound, past the tomb, past the Native American Cultural Center, coincidentally enough, and then into the graveyard, uh, the Grove Street Cemetery that we talked about before. And when you walk from the tomb to the Grove Street Cemetery, you see, you know, many different interesting connections. The Beinecke 
Memorial Library, where the Voynich manuscripts and other strange books are held. The Sterling Law School, where Hillary and Bill Clinton graduated as lawyers. Um, The Book and Snake Tomb, which is at the end of High Street, facing the Grove Street Cemetery. Now, the Book and Snake Tomb is arguably more fantastic than the Skull and Bones Tomb because it's much larger. It's all white marble, and it's surrounded by a fence, wrought iron, and each bar of the fence is a caduceus, a snake around another snake, and they meet each other face to face at the top, uh, and there's sort of a torch or the hilt of a sword. Uh, I think it's both, but they sort of, you know, either or, either or kind of pattern. Um, So there's so many interesting things. This is why taking a group of people on a little tour of New Haven. Uh, if anybody lives in the area and they'd like to go on a tour, uh, please get in touch with me because I want to I plan one for the fall now that we're getting into the season for this kind of <laughs> conversation. I guess people are a little more primed to hear about this spooky stuff in October. Uh, but yeah, it, it's interesting, you know, to, to be in the city around this architecture obviously it's all very new compared to what you see in france but the architecture at yale is designed in that same neo-gothic style that you might notice or know if you uh, are familiar with france or or somewhere where you know this occult information was uh popular right in france and in paris it's a necropolis, right? This sort of city of the dead underneath Paris, the catacombs. New Haven has that same thing going on uh, with this sort of city of the dead motif, whether it's um, the center green, the private burying ground, um, the tomb of St. John. There's a man named Samuel St. John. So I, I not really from familiar with this guy I couldn't find any info about him he's kind of an anomaly but he has the the most prominent tomb in all of the Grove Street Cemetery and all it says on the top is St. John now you remember earlier I said New England was first discovered quote unquote by Cabot on St. John the Baptist Day and uh, I I'm sure you're familiar you're very well versed that St. John the Baptist as well as St. John the Evangelist are both very important uh, figures in Masonic lore and symbolism. So is it a coincidence that if you walked from the south to the north side of High Street, you walked past all these tombs, the Beinecke Memorial Library, which looks like a giant gray cube, by the way, um, you walk by the Book and Snake Tomb. You walk by the Sterling Memorial Law, uh, Law School, where, um, or I'm sorry, I, I always mix these two. It's the Sterling Memorial Library, and then the Law School is also part of that same building, but they're different. They have different names. So you walk by that, and then you're in the Grove Street Cemetery. Right there is St. John the Baptist. I mean, <laughs> although it's not the real St. John the Baptist, when you learn that St. John the Baptist's skull was used for divination, 
by the Masons or the Templars. It, it, it kind of adds some, I don't know, energy to everything what we're talking about with skull and bones. Why are they collecting the skull and femur bones of various uh, famous people from American history? Geronimo, Martin Van Buren, uh, you know, just to name a few. I think there's probably a few others that are famous. Um, I know a few more obscure people that have been uh, stolen away by skull and bones. But the question is, why? Why? Why do they collect these skulls? Why do they collect their bones? Is it merely a trophy? Is it merely uh, to say we've defeated you, we've won, we've taken your nation from you, uh, and now we have your bones to prove it? Or is there something occult? You know, why would they want Geronimo's bones? Why would they want multiple Native American skulls? Because it's not just Geronimo. Uh, there was a newspaper article I found online in an archive that talked about some Chicago businessmen who gathered a bounty by killing a, a guy named the Apache Kid. He was an outlaw. He was probably very notorious with a name like the Apache Kid. Apaches were always, you know, considered the fiercest, hence why they named a helicopter after them. Um, but yeah, the Apache Kid is among, you know, many Native Americans whose skull and crossbones have been taken to the tomb. And not just the tomb, I mean, think about all of the museums and private collections by the very same people who are involved in groups like the Smithsonian or Yale's, you know, various inner working groups, the Peabody Museum for example, in New Haven has hundreds of thousands of Native American artifacts. Uh, so, you know, what are they doing with these things? Preserving history, maybe uh, controlling history, I think is more accurate, or even like a parasitic entity, energetically absorbing the ancestral connection of the red man and taking his spiritual inheritance from him um, in a sort of act of black magic. That's why they built the cities on the ley line. That's why they called it Satan's axes. You know, that's why they pushed all of the tribes out of their homeland into places that they weren't even from, you know, mixed them all up <laughs> like it didn't even matter. And then force them to unlearn their own native tongue, right? I mean, I don't personally get involved too much with this victim psychology or sympathy for marginalized groups. I have a sort of libertarian philosophy about many things, but when it comes to the Native Americans, I don't think, and really indigenous people across the globe, uh, I don't think they're their plight, their, the tragedy that's faced them has been answered for uh, by corporate society. I don't want to blame any one group of people. It's really just this corporate, industrial, whatever it is that's caused this division between us as human beings and our Gaia consciousness. And the indigenous people were far more connected to that Gaia consciousness 
than the rest of us, hence why the powers that be have silenced them, you know, have moved them away from what they knew as their home and into these marginalized places where they have no personal power. They've been humiliated. They've been cast out. They've been exiled. So, you know, it, it's about time that we as human beings, wherever we are uh, on the planet, start to look into the history of where we are and find out what's really gone down, you know, uh, for the very least to have the awareness, you know, maybe we don't need to go and, and do some kind of like, uh, you know, 40 acres and a mule type bullshit, but you know, we, we definitely need to, uh, have some awareness about what's really happened here and, and have more respect for the native Americans. I mean, I've, I've learned a lot about their culture and it's made me a better person. So that's partly what my research into skull and bones is, is all always been about because, you know, Amos came into my life at a time when I was impressionable. I was young. I care about the world. I still do. I always have. And, you know, he basically (laughs) was the most honest person at that point in my life that I had ever encountered. Like, hey, this is how the world is. This is who's running the world. There is darkness out there. Like, be careful, you know, to put it very simply. Uh, He didn't put it that simply, but uh, I've said a lot here. And, you know, whether the Saturnian energy of New Haven is actually influencing people on an occult level or not, uh, just look at Yale and what they do today. Uh, Just look at what, the impoverished community that surrounds Yale like a jacket. <laughs> well, look at them. You know, you don't have to walk more than 10 minutes past the Yale's campus and you find some of the worst squalor in the whole state, you know, and you're, and you're looking at a college that's internationally known that has some of the wealthiest people going in and out of it. Uh, and it's an absolute shame what they've done to the environment to the people in their community. They're a parasite on their community and they don't pay taxes either. That's like a big thing for locals. They get really mad about that because, you know, they don't pay taxes because they're a religious school. Um, So yeah, Yale has got a lot to answer for and Harvard and all of these Ivy league schools. And I think they're complicit uh, and they're guilty in the genocide of the native American people. Uh, to sum it up boldly. <laughs> absolutely, man. Absolutely. All right. So do you want to talk a little bit about the Yale graduate, uh, Nathan Hale, uh, one of America's first spies? How does he fit in all this? Yeah. So, you know, that kind of brings in the other sort of twilight language aspects of this, right? We have New Haven is known for, like I said, mostly in this conversation, secret societies. I tried to highlight the, the native consciousness aspect of that. And, you know, Native Americans had their own secret societies. Maybe we can get into that on another day. Um, but, you know, drug smuggling is a big part of New Haven's history. And the third thing that is of interest to you and I'm sure your audience is espionage has always been. Uh, a big part of New Haven's energy and New Haven's history. And Nathan Hale is remembered 
through the National Guard base here in New Haven. There's a Nathan Hale uh, Fort, Fort Hale. And you also have uh, Nathan Hale graduating from Yale University. He was a member of one of Yale's original debate societies that became the secret societies, right? So the debate societies evolved into secret societies. And this is a very Greek kind of concept, right? The sort of mystery schools. And so he was a part of a group called the Lenonian Society. And he graduated from Yale in 1773. Um, he was a first, he was a part of America's first espionage operation. Are you familiar with the Culper Ring? Uh, just vaguely. Uh, why don't you fill the audience in on us? Yeah, so George Washington had secret um, secret plans. You know, he had all these sort of secret missions. A couple of them failed, but one of them that was successful was uh, the Culper Ring. And Nathan Hale was involved with the Culper Ring. Um, what they actually did, off the top of my head, Let's see. So I'm, I just looked it up. I don't want to just butcher it <laughs> off the top of my head. So um, I guess it comes from Culpeper County. That's what that comes from. But, yeah, they were just, you know, spying. They were spying on, uh, on the British throughout the colonies. You know, back then, there's a lot going on. And Nathan Hale was executed by the British because he was spying. He was up to, you know, up to some espionage and they caught him and he did not confess. He famous last words were something very patriotic um, and that was it, you know. But there's a Nathan Hale statue in New Haven to this day and I think, you know, in this sort of twilight language kind of way, um, espionage has always been a part of New Haven uh, for worse and for better in Nathan's Hale, in Nathan Hale's case. I mean, I'm not against the American Revolution. I think that was, uh, you know, something historic for all of humanity. And the Native Americans were very much an influence, positive influence on the founding fathers uh, in a way. So, um, you know, espionage nowadays would be... <laughs> spying on their own citizens and uh you know all that stuff but espionage originally was a very occult thing you know uh, john d and ciphers and you know all of these sort of esoteric symbols that they would use to communicate with each other um you know it's just i don't think the average american really like looks at espionage and thinks about it that way they think like you know, James Bond, they think, uh, you know, military stuff. There's an aspect of espionage that's very occult. I'm sure you're familiar that Aleister Crowley himself was a, a spy and an occultist, obviously. So, you know, Yale has uh, this reputation and New Haven has a similar reputation for being a sort of uh, place that, really connected people can come and meet and communicate with one another under the radar. You know, New Haven's not like a, a a place like New York City or Boston or, 
even Philadelphia where, you know, you have thousands of people commuting to, to work and, you know, even more people coming annually for, uh, to visit and just to, how am I forgetting this word? Travel? No, whatever. Vacation. <laughs> so New Haven's kind of under the radar, you know, we got some interesting spots, some, uh, some fancy little hideaways that maybe some secret plans could have been. Nowadays, it's all done on computers, but, you know, 50, 60 years ago, New Haven would have been one of those little backwater spots where uh, they could have pulled off a, a, a Bilderberger-type meeting, you know, so to speak. That's a fascinating thing about all this, man. I mean, it's just uh, to see how it just sort of continues on and how the same modus operandi plays. Uh, on that note, let's get into the objective in the modus operandi of Skull and Bones. How does this relate to the uh, colonized and the colonizer as well as the concept of the soul, S-O-U-L, and the soul, S-O-L-E, power? Mm, right. Well, and, and that's kind of what I was describing before with the art, it's like, you know, you're taking the, the, the original inhabitants of this land, removing them from their source of energy, you know, like here in new England, there are all these forgotten stone structures. I think the most well-known is probably American Stonehenge, but it doesn't really get a lot of respect uh, because it's not megalithic, but there are megalithic stone structures here in New England, and I believe that they don't they they don't highlight them because they you know don't want us to consider uh, the truth of what New England's history actually was. I mean, there are plenty of examples of huge, huge stone carvings. Um, the old man in the mountain is one of them, right? And you could argue that, oh, that was, that was just like, you know, a natural formation. It's always looked like a man, but I think there's something more mystical at play. You know, I, I think there's, there's some truth to folklore, folklore, like the story of sleeping giant, right? So for those not familiar with Connecticut about, a 10 minute drive north of New Haven where Yale campus and skull and bones is, is a mountain called sleeping giant and sleeping giant is allegedly the body of an ancient God named Catan and Catan fought with his brother Hobomoko, who was sort of the adversarial God of the area. And, Hobomoko lost and Ketan was badly wounded and and he fell and his body became this giant mountain. And as you're driving north out of New Haven on I-91, the highway, you'll you'll see the silhouette of a man's body in the distance. And it, it's this mountain. You see the head, you see the chest, sort of dips towards his legs and then there's a little feet at the end and and that's the that's the giant right so this is just one example but I, I don't think that people you know really you know associate myths 
with the actual world the way they used to. And that's partly because of this dumbing down or materialization of our education. Um, I would say that, you know, there are some stones that have very strange qualities that are, you know, beyond physical. Uh, another folklore is that there's this stone that will eat you alive. You stand on it. There's, it's in New Hampshire somewhere. And it's this man-eating stone. And unfortunate uh, or unlucky travelers who step on this giant boulder are, like, basically absorbed into it, right? <laughs> I don't know what kind of physics that is, but, you know, we're talking about you know, some really strange, uh, strange areas, you know, New England. Yeah. There's a bunch of cities and stuff, but it only takes a short car drive from one of these cities to end up in a pretty wild and untamed place. And, you know, the base of, I'm going to take a quick left turn here. The base of this statue of Liberty is made out of this very specific, type of pink granite that comes from this part of Connecticut. And um, we're told that these ancient giants <laughs> fell into the ground and became mountains. And you have this very rare type of pink granite. I don't know. To me, maybe the argument could be made in a sort of twilight language way that the Statue of Liberty is built uh, using the flesh of ancient giants, right? Like the base of it. Um, not to mention that pink's granite is also used in the Lincoln Memorial. Uh, it's also used in the Washington Monument. So it's not, you know, accidental that they would choose this particular type of granite for all of these uh, significant national structures uh, and it has this sort of mythological association with giants. So, um, you know, this is what I'm talking about when I when I say that they're taking the soul power and co and condensing it into soul power. Soul, uh, the latter being S O L E, meaning uh, under the control of one person, rather than soul power, which would be S O U L, uh, meaning the power of the collective totality of humanity when we are not controlled by a royalty or a monarchy or a system and we are allowed to operate uh, in harmony and free will uh, with respect towards one another you know we're, we're talking about two different worlds and that is exactly what collided when east met west right when europe met the native americans Sure, the Native Americans weren't all perfect, and they definitely weren't all the same. Some of them were, you know, warlike, so to speak. Others were very peaceful and harmonious. The Arawats, you know, they, they were too kind, some might say, to Columbus, because they paid a, a, a very hard price for their kindness. You know, Columbus betrayed them uh, when he visited the Arawats in the Caribbean there. So, you know, it, it's, it's, it's not something that is just chalked up to, oh, well, 
you know, the Europeans had all these illnesses and the Native Americans couldn't, uh, you know, their immune systems couldn't handle it and they just all got wiped out. It's so much more complicated than that. Yes, I think there was probably illness and diseases at play. Yeah, of course, there's Europeans who were dying of that all the time. It, it, it's so much more complicated than that. What happened here was a spiritual conquest. Uh, Columbus named these people Indians, not because they thought they were going to India, but because he recognized they were Indios. <laughs> they were living with God. Uh, and that's what I'm describing by soul power, is when we realize that we are the kingdom of God. We are uh, gods ourselves, so to speak not in this egotistical, I can control whatever I wish type of way, but in this sort of, we're all taking part uh, equally, uh, and every one of us matters no matter how big or small. That's the type of soul power that's been taken away from us and replaced with this monarchical S-O-L-E soul power that, uh, you know, you can argue maybe roots back to like, who knows, Akhenaten. (laughs) <laughs> and for all intensive purposes, wasn't he an alien, right? Like, so we have this alien guy that comes and teaches people monotheism. And ever since then, uh, it seems like the world's uh, gone from worse to crazier. <laughs> so uh, I don't know. I understand that I'm just a uh, simple stoner dude out here researching this stuff, uh, you know, flying by the the seat of my pants and you know I don't have like a, a professor to answer to or a boss to answer to so or a publisher to answer to so <clears throat> if if you've heard me say anything that you disagree with or you you think that you can prove wrong get in touch with me I'd love to hear it uh, not you specifically Stephen uh, I know you can get in touch with me and I sure I'm sure you would have corrected me uh, and will do so if you can uh, I would like that I welcome that really uh, because I'm still learning you know I I, I want to learn as much as I can about American history uh, to better understand who I am and why I'm here and maybe how um, we can benefit in the future from this knowledge you know uh, history that's forgotten is bound to repeat itself yeah absolutely and i mean that's uh, certainly in the case of the genocide that uh, went on in this uh, early history of this country during the period of colonization something we, we don't want to repeat of mm. all right um so how does this concept like, you know, mound gridding play into something like enthroning Turtle Island? Well, first off, like explain to the listeners what Turtle Island is in the first place. So Turtle Island would be the metaphysical sort of name, in my opinion, for North America. Um, many different Native American peoples, cultures referred to this land as Turtle Island. They didn't refer to it as America. That's partly why, you know, my friend Amos said to me, you know, I, I'd rather be called a, a an Indian than a Native American. He's like, I don't even know what an American is. He's like, I'm. What's an America? He's like, I'm not native to that. He's like, we didn't call it America. So that's sort of the where Turtle Island comes from, in a way. 
it's sort of a poetic uh, name and and Native American language was extremely poetic. It was extremely descriptive and very very dreamlike almost. So when they when they came here, they realized what was going on pretty quickly. They realized it was very similar to what they had seen in their own history, right? Because, you know, Rome was doing this in in Europe. They were going and, and taking the pagans and turning them into Christians, right? And Christianizing the, the pagans, uh, at least Rome, the Holy Catholic Church Rome did that. And I think that's kind of what we're talking about here. They take these sacred sites of the Native Americans, convert them to sacred sites that fit into the Catholic worldview, and then slowly but surely either killed or converted everyone who lived and prayed in that area. Because, you know, the Native Americans, American Indians, whatever they want to call themselves, they were prayerful people. They prayed. They believed in a creator. So it wasn't totally uh, foreign to convert them to, you know, Catholicism or what have you, uh, because they sort of, they had that template just, you know, in a very more, you know, instinctual way in in the sense of like, it was simpler. It wasn't so uh, aggrandized and detailed. And it's almost like the details were unnecessary. It was, it was something that the, people who lived in North America were enveloped in. They were, they were dream walkers. You know, they, they lived in the dream consciousness. And what religion does is it takes us out of that. It takes us into the I consciousness, the ego consciousness. And then, you know, as our consciousnesses have evolved more and more for better or worse, I tend to think it's a little bit of both. Um, you know, we've, we've lost touch with some of the wisdom that was there waiting for us to learn from, you know, that's sort of the, the great challenge of being here in this incarnation is learning from our mistakes, learning from our failures. And I think now as a humanity, the failure that we have to learn from is the failure of colonization, you know, the failure of, uh, of when two cultures come together and one destroys the other rather than, uh, you know, finding a balance between the two. That's what's happened. You know, there wasn't a, a balancing of Native American culture with Western culture. There was a devouring, a cannibalism. And that's how they enthroned the Turtle Island. They painted the natives as savages, as barbarians, as cannibals. So how would you treat a barbarian? How would you treat a savage? How would you treat a cannibal? You would treat them savagely, right? This is the propaganda that was spread, and that's how Turtle Island was uh, taken over. I mean, Amos told me some really gut-wrenching stories, one of them being that when certain groups of Europeans, whether the Spanish or the British, would make their way into a territory and 
want to take over a village, they would go to the elder because at this point they had done it a few times. They knew how highly respected the elders were in each community. So they would go to the elder, they would chop their head off, open up their skull, and then cook their brain and eat it like a soup in front of the rest of the tribe. So, you know, that's just one of, of many little tidbits and anecdotes that Amos has shared with me, uh, gruesome anecdotes, I should say. Um, and it's, it's brutal, you know, it's rough. That's not the kind of thing that they teach kids about. They teach kids about Squanto giving squash to the pilgrims and then the pilgrims, you know, patted Squanto on the back and, you know, said, thanks, buddy, you know, but really what they did was they got the squash and then they shot and sold Squanto off to slavery, <laughs> you know? I mean, not Squanto specifically, but uh, you get what I'm saying. I mean, Pocahontas, she was shipped off to England, right? So this is, uh, it's it's like I said, it's, it's not my typical uh, morality to be, you know, sympathetic. I think people need to have a sort of stand up for themselves sense and not be victims, of course. But, um, you know, what we're talking about here is a, is a crime of historical proportions, um, the genocide that went on here in North America. So, yeah, that's, I mean, that's kind of what I mean by enthroning uh, Turtle Island. And then, you know, the grids and the mounds, Anyone who's interested in that, I refer to Ross Ben and his research. He's done a lot of really great research into the mound gridding. Um, but one thing I can say is that, you know, mounds were a gateway point, a gateway point for the Native Americans to commune with their ancestors, with their past relatives who passed on. You you bury, you know, that many people in one place, the DNA will be dispersed in the soil over time so you're literally standing on your ancestors you know it's not just that there's some body in the ground and it decayed and then it's gone and their soul is floating around like a ghost yeah okay maybe that's one way to interpret it but the truth is scientifically when a, a organism decays in the soil it becomes a part of the soil so that mound that you're standing on is literally your great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, okay? So think about that. You meditate on top of that mound. How much insight, how much wisdom, how much knowledge is there from all of your paternal ancestors, from all of your maternal ancestors guiding you? Um, so to grid a mound is to destroy it and build a city on top of it. And to disrespect those ancestors by never even thinking about them or communing with them or leaving any token of them at all. I mean, if you destroy a mound and build a Catholic church onto it, how many Catholics even care that the mound was there in the first place? Not many. So that's what, you know, enthroning Turtle Island looks like, is decapitating the Native American, literally decapitating them. Uh, mounds being, you know, uh, sort of a ethereal head right because you you look at a mound what is it it's like it's like the higher it, it grows out of the ground it's like a, 
a body like emerging, you know, like a human being emerging out of the ground, like the crown of their head emerging out of the ground. That's what I think of when I think of a mound. I think of like a, like a, like the Mau, uh, Moai heads in Easter Island. You know how uh, they say there's a whole body underneath the head? That's kind of what I think about when I think of mounds. Yeah, I mean, they are certainly one of the most mysterious things uh, left behind by some of the uh, Native American civilizations. And I mean, yeah, it's uh, certainly as somebody who's just studied a lot of the mounds in the uh, Ohio Valley in Wisconsin, I mean, it is fascinating <clears throat> to see, I mean, just some of the different uses they've been put towards. Uh, I know one of the things that I noted recently when I was at the uh, Mound City uh, near Chillicothe, um, is the fact that there are two major prisons mm. that were built like right next to this, you know, major Hopewell site. And that's not the only case I've seen that. Um, obviously, there's the Grave Creek Mound 2 in um, Moundsville, uh, West Virginia, uh, which is uh, an Adena Mound. Uh, it's a very, it's one of the largest ones still uh, standing. I think it's like nearly 60 feet high. It's a very impressive structure. Uh, but anyway, um, it's also right next uh, to a prison, like directly across the street. In the case of the uh, West Virginia one, that was actually where they did a lot of the executions for many years, too. Uh, I haven't had a chance to look into that with the Ohio um, prisons yet, because there's two in that case, like right next to the Mound City complex. But I wouldn't be surprised if there were executions done there as well. But like, yeah, just... I find it so fascinating how it seems like they continue to use these um, these sites, you know, for this kind of uh, perverse like, black magic and what have mm. you. Well, and to to add to your point about them building prisons and, and in other cases, I've seen insane asylums built uh, near mound sites. I think that is to discredit. Uh, the energetic experiential value of the area because anybody who goes to a mound site that is preserved you know they note that it's a pretty special experience there's a certain feeling you get there and who knows maybe if you're you're meant to spend a lot of time there uh, you'd start to have strange experiences and and maybe you know, they wouldn't want uh, school children or people who have the potential to be more credible than, let's say, a, a mental patient or a prisoner. You know, maybe they don't want credible people spending a lot of time in these sites because of the energetic potential. They got to put, you know, people who are already on the fringes of society there so that there isn't, uh, you know, any investigation of authoritative value into the phenomena that goes on in these places. Or maybe they've figured out a way to negate the energy of the mound, you know, in a way that it's like has a negative effect for, you know, like a like a cloud of uh, <laughs> like a dark cloud over the area and they're like okay perfect place to build a prison that's that's a gloomy area let's just you know add insult to injury or make the suffering harder i mean i don't mean to be so cynical but that seems like you know something they would do like a cruel and unusual punishment uh you know lock a bunch of people up where the dog man manifests or where ghosts are regularly heard. 
Yeah, you've got to wonder about it. I mean, because there is a lot of this kind of insane stuff like that. Well, just, I mean, in general, too, I mean, um, you know, one of the groups I've looked a lot at is the Society of Cincinnati. And I mean, Mm. this was uh, a major organization for a lot of the founding fathers, but the society was really obsessed with the mounds. In fact, uh, in Marietta, they were like one of the first... uh, I think I think they were the first preservation society in America that tried to maintain the mounds, and then that was uh, kind of carried on by other members in other parts of the country. But um, there were really a big reason why uh, a good chunk of them are still remaining, like in the Ohio Valley area. But it was uh, just fascinating because a lot of figures, like George Washington. I was the longtime president of uh, the Cincinnati. Uh, spent a lot of time excavating these structures and what have you. The um, the founding fathers were very keenly interested in them, and um, you know, really, since the early nineteenth century, there's been kind of a consorted effort to cover up a lot of mounds. It's you know what's been found in them, just all kinds of things like that. I mean, especially with like the Smithsonian, and um, I mean, again, I don't really subscribe to the notion of like giants and you know that kind of thing. Um, but it's just very strange that really since the early 19th century, only a handful of people have really been able to even excavate a lot of these um, sites. And I mean, a lot of, um, you know, what's been found in them, you know, has been kind of covered up, uh, but certainly also to the fact that a lot of the uh, archeologists who were also responsible for the excavations now um, by and large have a rather dubious reputation. I mean, you would kind of think that, there also might be more of a push to get like a more accurate sense of like what was in these things and what have you, um, you know, some of the sites where it might still be possible, but yeah, it's, uh, it's a complicated, uh, subject, no doubt. Um, and yeah, it's been kind of further money by, um, you know, a lot of the intrigues, honestly, that have been around the, uh, these structures, which is, uh, one of the bizarre legacies. And then also kind of, um, the role of being that the Smithsonian and, and all that kind of takes into the Ivy leagues, I think to some extent too, as you had alluded to earlier. So, yeah. Right. And, and I like that you pointed that out the, the, cause I wasn't familiar with that and I'm, I appreciate you pointing that out because I'd hate to sound black and white with what I'm saying. You know, I don't think it's as as simple as like one group did this and another group was the good guys. And, you know, it's a very complicated blending of influences here in New England and the colonies at large. So it's, it's very assuring to hear that there were people like that who would decided we need to preserve these things and i'm grateful that someone did because who knows how much more would be lost without their efforts so yeah it's good to know that in 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 history it's easy to assume that you know everyone was a certain way uh without sort of diving in to the deeper intricacies and and yeah i i think well, I mean, I think also, though, to some extent, they preserved it because they wanted to tie it into the own magic that they were right, doing. Right, right. Well, know. and that's what I was kind of about to say. Like, whether they were whether they were on the side of the Native Americans or not, they clearly recognized that the Native Americans were tapped into a culture that they were as well connected to, but in a much more ancient way, right? I mean, with... with Rome and the pagans and I mean I don't know to me it seems like 
when you examine Washington, D.C. and all of the alignments, all of the arrangements, they had to be occultists, you know? And it seems to me like the they weren't so much the problem. It was more of the fundamentalists who were trying to burn books and, and massacre and get rid of history and... You know, so I'm I'm very interested in in like the order of Cincinnatus, hence why I had you on my show to talk about that, and uh, that episode should be out by the time this one is out. So, folks, please go listen to that. Um, but it, yeah, I just you know, I think again, it's it's not as simple as black and white or good or bad. Uh, I think you know George Washington had some interesting points about him. I don't know how much of this is like propaganda, but it seems to me like if anything, he was slightly sympathetic towards the spiritual views and beliefs of the native Americans. And that influenced our constitution in some way or our country in some way. Yeah, no, I mean, it is uh, certainly interesting to see some of the different views the founders uh, took towards this. Um, and I mean, it, you know, just in general, I mean, it kind of seems like, uh, you know, a certain awareness of this, like, remained uh, in terms of, like, some of the uh, the naming and what have you that went on in some of the regions, at least that I've noted in um the Ohio Valley area. Um, it's just fascinating because one of the main... Uh, roads kind of like going through central Wisconsin or excuse me um Ohio is um U.S. Route 23 of course 23 um you know has a lot of connections I mean obviously in various strands with discordianism and what have you but it's also had long-standing uh ties to uh St. John as well um obviously St. John's Day uh is on June 23rd or St. John's Eve rather so there's been kind of that historic association between 23 and St. John. So um, wow. in Ohio, I mean, you've got U.S. Route 23 that, uh, you know, runs partly from Columbus uh, all the way down to Portsmouth at the border. Um, and that's just a, t- a ton of the uh, remaining mounds are right off of that road. I mean, including the Serpent Mound Complex, uh, the Mound City Complex, and then, of course, there's the earthworks uh, in Portsmouth itself. So, um, you know, most of them are accessible within a few miles of U.S. Route 23, which I find to be kind of fascinating. And um, also the Sugarloaf Mountain is like right off of it. And the Hopewell's cosmology, that was kind of like their literal, you know, um, Holy Mountain, their Axis Mundi, if you will, the you know, world tree. Mm-hmm. Um so, yeah, I mean, in their belief system, that would be uh, the mountain where, like, the soul would pass over uh, on its journey back uh, to the Milky Way, uh, the astral journey, which is where they believe that the human soul originated from. So, essentially, the Sugar Loaf Mountain is, like, kind of a crossroads of souls. It's, like, right there off of US-23, off of a street called Marietta. Uh, Marietta, Ohio, was the first town that the uh, Society of Cincinnati established in Ohio, and it's also got its own impressive mountain complex complex and uh sugarloaf is in a park called great seal state park which is interesting too mm, wow yeah absolutely yeah. 
So, like, yeah, it's just, it's so fascinating to me to see how, I mean, there does seem to have been a continual awareness of the significance of a lot of these structures. And, I mean, even some of, like, the highway system and what have you and some of the street names and what have you. I mean, or even, like, allusions to this. Um, you know, it's a really interesting uh, aspect of all of this that I think kind of gets overlooked. But, um, mm-hmm. and I mean, US-23, too, I mean, is, you know, kind of becomes something of a historic highway. It's kind of, you know, uh, very, you know, as the hillbilly highway or the dixie highway because it was uh the route that a lot of the scots irish took out of appalachia into ohio and michigan you know to work in factories and so forth after the second world war um again you know that's also kind of interesting with scots irish obviously they have a long tradition of kind of like the folk magic and what have you bring brought over from the old country and continued in appalachia so uh, and some of the darker aspects as well with criminality. Um, mm. well, kind of see, well, you sort of, it's like kind of the road and, you know, murders that they had in Southern Ohio. Um, you know, they got a lot of press a couple of years ago. You know, there was a lot of speculation that it might have been a drug cartel because it was like this whole family, essentially, this farmhouse that was murdered, like eight people. Um, and they had, you know, a couple of... Uh, cannabis farms that they were maintaining nearby which is where there had been speculation but it turned out it was actually another family i think it was the newtons who were mostly based across the border um in kentucky and i mean it was you know i mean almost sort of like this combination of the hatfield mccoys and you know old style shotgun weddings and even then maybe even going further back to the the old country you know the borders area between scotland and ireland and the clans used to do those cross-border raids and you know you kill off the family and take their women back and marry them and i mean it was almost this just perverse ritual drama being played out in modern america and this whole sort of region so i mean it's just to me this is like i mean one of the most fascinating things i've been looking at lately is how these sort of um you know most almost archetypical dramas uh continue to play out in modern America and frequently in a lot of these, um, you know, very strange uh, sites and regions of the country as well, uh, which obviously isn't a coincidence. Mm. Well, when you mentioned the, the folk magic, I mean, Appalachia is like fraught with that, you know, like this, it's a hot spot. I've never been, I know you're in the sort of smack dab in the center of it. But I'm on the Appalachian chain up here in Connecticut, so to speak, like uh, go hiking on the Appalachian, the smaller mountains that are kind of on the foothills of the Appalachians up here. And um, it's just interesting, like back in the day, this time period we're talking about, you know, the Puritans and the Pilgrims get like this big sort of airtime, but the Quakers and the Shakers, the Morovians, like there were a lot of these like more mystical smaller denominations that would not only like interbreed with the native americans but like not interbreed that sounds really bad uh i don't know if you're familiar they would mingle uh it's it's called albion seed um gosh i can't remember the author's name off the top of my head but it's really good work and it kind of goes into the four initial like migrations um, from the British Isles to uh, the United States, and it kind of covers the Puritans of New England, the Quakers, uh, and like the Philadelphia region, 
uh, the kind of tide water gentry who uh, took up a shop in um, Virginia, and then obviously the Scots Irish uh, in Appalachia. But it's just sort of fascinating because one of the things he looks at is like kind of the magical traditions of each ones. And yeah, you're you're very much right. Like, and it is sort of fascinating when you see how like the the Puritan fathers, like on the one hand, sort of had this like keen interest in like alchemy and things of that nature, um, again, are kind of intermingled with maybe some of the folk magic that was picked up at the Native Americans. And then, you know, kind of going into the Philadelphia area, which really might have been the most <laughs> one of wash and maybe the most kind of arcane traditions. Because, I mean, yeah, you had like the, you know, the Mennonites and I mean, some of the folk traditions they brought over and the Swedenborgians and uh, the Quakers and just, you know, a lot of that kind of stuff. I mean, Appalachia, there was obviously a lot of the folk magic that they brought over. Um, I think it was really only like maybe the Tidewater gentry that didn't have like a super strong tradition of that. But, um, it is kind of interesting where it's like, you know, you sort of see also the differences and sort of like maybe the high magic of the uh, the Puritan fathers kind of contrasted with more of the, the folk magic, um, you know, like the Scots-Irish or something like that. Uh, I mean, but it is a really uh, just, you know, another really fascinating aspect of how like the different regions in the country developed. Right. Well, and it seems to be about, you know, control, really. It's It's not that, you know... Uh, one group was practicing magic and another didn't feel like that was on the right side of God and they had to chastise them for it. Everybody was <laughs> guilty. It was just about, you know, like, you know, whose magic was more stately, whose magic was more in line with uh, the, the the community, you know. And, and yeah, the, the alternative fringe stuff um, – sort of has made a resurgence in the past 50 or 60 years. And I think that is in line with some Native American prophecies that said, like, you know, you, several generations from now, your children will grow their hair long and return to the forest like we once lived, you know. And, I mean, look at the hippie generation. Look at the the uh, sovereign movement of people now and and how people are are really just learning like more than ever the importance of self-sufficiency. And isn't that just exactly how the original people of this land lived, you know, self-sufficient off the land to the point where they would, I mean, they were the original snowbirds, you know, like my grandparents go from Connecticut to Florida every season change. And, and, you know, that's what the, the natives would do. They wouldn't stay and, in the cold areas, they would, you know, scurry down south and spend the uh, winter in the warmer areas and move up to the colder areas in the summer, you know? Yeah, very much so. And then there's um, you know, my kind of region here in West Virginia where it was like the interior of the state was actually uh, almost totally uninhabited. Mm. It's actually kind of interesting because it's really still very scarce. And yeah. Really part of the state but yeah during the native american times i mean it was largely uninhabited there were some actually major ritual centers that uh unfortunately have largely been destroyed but um yeah wow. the um much of the interior though was not populated until the uh, europeans started to come in and like i said to this day i mean you can still go through wide swaths of uh, central west virginia and not see like really anything <laughs> yeah well, and you know, I'd love to. I'd love to invite you to be a guest on my 
podcast that I do separate from my family thinks I'm crazy. Uh, it has its own RSS feed. It's called Esoteric America. And uh, yeah, it would be really, I mean, I'm sure we could have you on talk about multiple different places, but it would be really unique and rare to have someone uh, with your expertise tell us about West Virginia, I imagine, just due to the you know demographics there. I mean, um, are, were you always from, are, are you born and raised there or did you settle there? Uh, well, yeah, I was born in Winchester, uh, but I did spend a good chunk of my early childhood in West Virginia. And then we moved to Florida around the time I was in third grade. And I was in Florida for many years in the Daytona Beach region. Oh, that's where my uh, grandparents are at right now. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Kind of always like surrounded by the mounds and the weird stuff too. Mm, yeah. Like, the Tim Walkway there and the kind of turtle mound, I think. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. The, and down there, what's interesting is they... They built mounds out of uh, spent seashells. Yeah, they would, you know, get so much shellfish every season that they would just pile it up. And, yeah, you'd have these massive, like, calcified mounds, you know, really interesting to think about, you know, the the energy quality of that compared to, like, a soil mound. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was really crazy. Well, I mean, it was also interesting, too, because I was um, right next to Cassadega. Well, not right next to it, but I was nearby Cassadega, uh, which was uh, the big spiritualist center that was, like, founded, um, you know, kind of in between Daytona Beach and Deland. Uh, I think around the late 19th century, supposedly, they were led to a spot by, like, a spirit guide. Hmm. Uh, but it's definitely a really interesting place. Um, you know, there's kind of the famous graveyard and the park out there and what have you. And uh, the land is kind of a weird spot, too, because that was where, oh, gosh, um, the guy who became uh, Lovecraft, the, you know, literary executioner of Lovecraft's estate uh, after he passed away, Clark Austin Smith, I think. I believe that was where he grew up. And it was just like a weird thing where Lovecraft uh, used to go down there, like in the summers to Deland, Florida, to like visit him. And uh, they had this, you know, shack or something that Smith's father had built, like off the side of the house. And I mean, he's just like a teenage boy at this point in time. Lovecraft's like in his 30s or something. And it was apparently they would, he would stay up late into the night with this 14 year old boy, like you know discussing literature <laughs> normal <laughs> yeah 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 so it had this, this sort of creepy thing with like lovecraft who used to mm. kind of show up and i've always like wondered about that like nobody ever really had like looked into that but it's like yeah lovecraft used to kind of come up and have this weird relationship with this kid like you know maybe five miles from casadega florida which was like supposedly this major like occult mecca and what have you um mm. Uh, yeah. So, but yeah, I've been kind of surrounded by a lot of this weird stuff uh, for a good chunk of my life. And then I, you know, moved back up to West Virginia a couple of years ago. So yeah, it's been uh, interesting, you know, sort of checking out this whole area. Um, and then kind of the broader region around Kentucky and Ohio Valley, because I've always been really fascinated with the, um, the Adina and the Hopewell culture and the, uh, the broader Eastern Woodlands culture, which, um, is what really was responsible for a lot of the mounds, like in kind of, uh, you know, the, what would have been the old Northwestern territories in Appalachia, kind of the Great Lakes region and what have you, or the Ohio Valley, Appalachia, kind of that whole sort of region around Wisconsin, Michigan, Indiana, uh, Illinois, um, 
you know, Ohio, obviously, Kentucky, West Virginia, parts of northern Tennessee. And there's mm. just you know, so many kind of uh, fascinating structures. Um, oh, yeah. Built, uh, about the civilizations there. So, yeah, I recently learned on that show I just mentioned uh, of the Etowah Mounds in northern Georgia and that sort of uh, northern Georgia, you know, uh, Eastern Tennessee. Um, I think the Carolinas are also bordering there. Maybe I'm not sure. Just South Carolina. Yeah, well, that's like you know, you know, that's another fascinating thing about the uh, US 23. I was telling you about because it actually starts in um, Jacksonville, Florida, and mm. it runs all through like um, Western Georgia. I haven't had a chance to like look at it yet. Um, but I think, you know, it kind of goes through some of the areas that like you're talking about. And then, I mean, it sort of goes up through like uh, the border around Tennessee and North Carolina and really gets into sort of the Appalachia area. And then, you know, when it gets into Appalachia proper, I mean, it goes through like Ashland, Kentucky and Portsmouth, and, you know, like I said before, like Chillicothe, just all of these areas that were just really awash with mounds. And it continues all the way to uh, Michigan, I think, up to practically like the Great I would. Lane. I would get, uh, I would reckon to say that there's probably a lot of copper along that route because of all the copper that was pulled out of Michigan. Uh, we were just mm. talking about Michigan last week, and my buddy Chad Stemke, uh, who's done a lot of research in the Stargates in Detroit, uh, he showed us some images of these huge chunks of copper that they have on display in some park in Michigan. and you know, talking about the history, the ancient history of copper mining in the area and how it's mysterious. You know, there's so many pounds of copper that have no, you know, record of being taken. They're like, maybe it was the Phoenicians, maybe it was, uh, you know, Vikings, maybe, you know, who knows who it was. But yeah, it's pretty interesting to uh, find copper down in, in the Etowah Mounds. They have these copper thunderbirds that they found down there uh you know just like these sort of uh pieces of art used in ceremony uh, in the shape of a co uh, thunderbird you know it's not surprising because the thunderbird you know is such like a reoccurring motif mm. in a lot of the eastern woodland uh civilizations uh, and then of course i mean there's been a lot of debate if we maybe had modern manifestations of the thunderbird through things like mothman and what have you um, which is just another fascinating well, and there's there's some thought to the the possibility of maybe these megalithic structures and even the mound structures were uh facilitators in some way for the energy field required to manifest a being into existence maybe a plasma based being uh, maybe a being from another dimension, Lovecraftian type old ones even. Uh, but yeah, we have this uh, idea floating around that I've heard a lot lately. I think Greg Little uh, wrote about it in his latest book, um, Origins of the Gods, this concept of like plasma beings. And um, it's interesting because unrelated to that research i was listening to a guy named larry arnold i think he wrote a book about spontaneous combustion and he noted the statistical anomaly that showed that there were frequently people uh, becoming spontaneously combusted along ley lines and my thought is well maybe we don't have the capacity to 
witness these beings anymore, but they still travel along these energetic highways, these ley lines. And because they're, you know, plasma or whatever, if, if we run into them, you know, it's like an intersection. We get like, you know, collided with this uh, high energy force. It's, it totally vaporizes us. And that's why you have these like piles of ash uh, next to like a human foot. And people are like, how the heck did this person spontaneously combust? But the rest of their furniture in their house is still intact. You know, maybe it's a energy, you know, that only could do that to a human being, you know, because we're also uh, maybe a higher order energy being in comparison to like a couch or a drywall. You know, it's a lot easier for a plasma being to phase through those uh, immutable sort of objects compared or not immutable, uh, those sort of neutral objects compared to, you know, us as sort of immutable energy. All right, to wrap up, how about the Templars and Illuminati in America, and who are the New Atlanteans, and how does the apocalypse fit in? Yeah, so this is the this is this is a six days work. That's what I'm starting to think that this idea of you know God returning and you know his chosen people being sent back to heaven, like. You know, we talked about the Puritans having sort of Christian Kabbalistic ideas and proto or sort of pseudo Jewish ideas. And who knows, maybe they were even crypto Jews. We, we know a lot about like the Jews in Spain, right? There's a lot of uh, Jewish people hiding amongst the Spanish because they were uh, kicked out during the Inquisition. So they had a choice to, to convert or, or not. And I, I believe a lot of the Spanish, you know, kept their mystical Kabbalistic teachings and just sort of, you know, on the outside were Christian. So, you know, there's a lot of these mystical ideas at play, not just with the Spanish, but other groups of people who settled the, the new world, so to speak. And you see it in the toponymy, how we started, you know, with, with like these biblical names uh, for places, you know, all over the country, uh, here in New England specifically, New England for that matter, but New Heaven, right? New Heaven, New Haven. Uh, we have Salem. We have uh, Bethlehem is another place not too far from here. Um, and it goes on and on and on, you know, down to Canaan is another interesting part of Connecticut. New Canaan is the wealthiest uh, part of Connecticut and one of the wealthiest suburbs in the whole country. Um so this is, you know, ingrained in the American culture and it's also ingrained in a lot of the religious ideas that founded this country. This concept that, you know, the apocalypse was near and, you know, the final judgment was coming. So, you know, get right with God and work hard and do what you need to do so that you'll be on his good side in the final judgment. It's all sort of it's a little bit like a double-edged sword, you know, like this whole um, Luther sort of influence. And then there's the Calvinists with their ideas. And it's way outside of my realm of expertise. I'm no religious scholar. But from what I can deduce, very simply... Uh, it, it's pretty obvious. I mean, you still have to this day groups like Jehovah Witness, you know, and 
who are constantly telling us that the end of the world is coming. Uh, it just, and then all the cults, you know, uh, groups of people that have sort of pledged their allegiance to UFOs, this whole new world order, uh, new, new age sort of order of religion. It's very similar to this millinery religious template that was set here in the United States. So, you know, right down to that nine square grid that we were talking about before, we look at Washington, D.C., we look at New York City, Detroit, Chicago, any one of these major uh, works of urban planning, they're all meant to gain God's providence. They're all intended on fitting that divine template that fits into the Temple of Solomon that the Masons are obsessed with. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, to, to sum it up really briefly, that's kind of what I mean by that. Um, you know, this, this six days work, it's kind of interesting. Now we have this Tartaria. It's, I think it's a psyop, honestly, coming into play, getting people to question history and timelines and, and this idea that, oh, there was a advanced civilization here that got destroyed by a cataclysm. It's just, you know, pushing the, the timeline around, you know. Um, it, it, it's outside of, of my pedigree of understanding right now, but from what I can see, we've created the perfect environment for the cult C-U-L-T, cult mindset here in the United States. And major element of cult thinking is this prophetic, ultimatum, uh, comfort-seeking ideology that you are the chosen person or that this is the end of time. You know, it all boils down to one of two inversions, right? Either making you think that you are God to the point where it's not good, it's destructive, it's chaotic, or the opposite of that where you're just infinitesimally unimportant. God doesn't exist. He's so far away. He's just a flash in the Big Bang. And, you know, we have both of these ideas sort of battling each other um, in many different ways facets and capacities now you know atheism versus monotheism and all of its different varieties and so i think the united states here we're going to be the you know not just the united states but america north america south america even we're going to be the spiritual torch for the new age right this kind of idea that crowley talked about but unlike what crowley talked about it's not going to be controlled by, you know, elites or or uh, the priest class like it may have been in the past. This turning of the cycles will fall in the people's favor, humanity's favor. And that's what the apocalypse really is. Um, and in order to get on the controlling side of that, the elite or the powers that be, the priest class, the Nephilim maybe even, whoever they may be, um, they 
have to deceptively give us an impression uh, that the apocalypse has already come or, you know, manipulate us from this so that when it actually does arrive, this apocalypse, whatever it is, energetic shift even, or just something as simple as the poles magnetically changing, right? I mean, it could be a, any number of a variety of, of things that can change the earth. Uh, but this change will come, right? This is the idea that's been ingrained in the consciousness of America. Uh, and whether that change is real or not, I think it's it's beyond argument you know, that so many people think that way. Um, and, you know, for better or worse, we need to get ahead of that and start to give people option for what uh, anthroposophic future looks like. In the, in the vision of someone like Rudolf Steiner or, or someone uh, in that vein, someone like Rudolf Steiner. I, I use him as an example because he wasn't perfect, but he was a great, um, he had an ideal that I can agree with for what uh, the world should look like. So, yeah, that's kind of, I mean, feel like I sort of failed to answer your question honestly but uh but that's that's kind of that's how I feel about you know the apocalypse and it, and again it's it's been ingrained in the American psyche it's a part of the template no that was well said mark and uh, it's uh, certainly been a fascinating conversation uh did you have any closing thoughts here before we sign off Agreed. Fascinating. And, you know, I've learned a lot from you, not just in this conversation, but in our previous conversation and in other times listening to you on other podcasts and on the farm here. So it's an honor to be here. Uh, I really appreciate it. I, I can remember like six or seven, maybe five years ago. I don't know. It's hard for me to think of time. 2018, I was a delivery driver and I was uh, listening to the higher side chats and I see this name pop up recluse. And I'm like, who's this recluse guy? And, uh, it's just, it's surreal to be here now on your show. So thank you, brother. I appreciate it. And, uh, I appreciate you giving me an opportunity to share all of this. And, uh, yeah, if anyone wants to hear more, uh, I've talked about this subject before on my show and others, so you can find all that at myfamilythinksimcrazy.com. That's my podcast title, and it's also the name of my website. Yeah, no, we'll definitely have to have you back on here at some point here, uh, discuss a few other topics. I'm sure there's a lot of other things of interest we could uh, cover for the listeners. Agreed. Uh, been doing it. it's, uh, it's been a real pleasure having you on, Mark. And as always, I want to thank you guys out there for listening. And with that, we're going to sign off for now. So good night and good luck to you all. That was quite a long interview. Like I said, originally aired in two parts. The first part for free on Steven Snyder's podcast, The Farm Mock 2. 
and the second part available for subscribers only on his Patreon. Uh, the link for that Patreon is in the description of this episode, so please do consider supporting Steven Snyder on his Patreon. I am there. I'm listening to the bonus content. He's always putting out really great stuff, cutting edge. Uh, you won't hear this kind of content on any other podcast, in my opinion, uh, aside from this one, of course. So uh, please, folks, while you're at it, support us on Patreon. My family thinks I'm crazy. You can go to patreon.com slash MFTIC to get right to the main page, or you can go in the episode description here in this episode and click the link right there along with the patreon the rockfin the telegram and every other way that you can support uh this show and get in touch with this host and all of the other people that listen we have almost five actually 600 people almost 600 people in the telegram over 500 people in the telegram chatting it up Uh, shout out to everybody who spends time there i do appreciate all of you and uh until tomorrow i will see you guys wherever you are in the now we're coming out with a new episode tomorrow actually no it's already out uh today and uh yeah a little confused on the release i'm recording this outro after i recorded the intro and the outro for a different uh, episode that you may have heard already so uh yeah anyways today is 12:28. this episode will be coming out either on 1229 or 1230 so either way uh, hope you are having a great end of year 2022 and i look forward to hearing from anyone who tunes in in 2023 get in touch with me and uh not only will you get a shout out on the show but i will get back to you so anyways thank you and immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in that